0: welcome aboard the battleship pretension i am tyler smith i'm david Bax, and thank you for listening david yeah how you doing
1: very excited why is that it's our it's our big episode it's the reason we do this 364 weeks a year just to work up to this 364 <laughs> weeks that's what i said okay just keep i just blew past you. just keep going yeah. okay yeah. But
0: i'm sorry i'm sorry for calling
1: attention to it. <laughs> um, um f- should we start maybe by uh Paying some bills, absolutely. We wouldn't be able to do this if we weren't for our uh, generous sponsors. That's right. And David,
0: this is our last week to talk about Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings you the best in quality films from all around the world. Every day, movies curators introduce a new title, and you have thirty days to watch it. That means there's always thirty wonderful films to enjoy, all for only four ninety nine a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Uh, there are a lot of great movies available right now, including Bobcat Goldthwait's World's Greatest Dad, David Gelb's Jiro Dreams of Sushi, Todd Haynes' Poison, Evan Glidell's Bellflower, and Jean-Bernard Marlin's The Runaway, and many, many more. That's a wa- ton. Just- well, that's the thing is it's because it's the last week. I wanted to say there's a bunch, and yeah. there's and there's many more. So I forgot
1: what was the first one you mentioned. Uh, World's Greatest Dad. World's well, Greatest Dad. Awesome, which, movie. which is a
0: wonderful awesome film. Movie. Jerry James uh, the sushi. Also a great movie, which I actually didn't see, and I've heard I, I, I've heard that I would really like it. Um, okay. There is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. So this is going to be ending soon, so uh, get with the program here. Uh, you can try MUBI free for a month. Just go to MUBI.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. And a special thank you to MUBI for sponsoring the show for the last several months. It yeah. is a great service that celebrates great film.
1: And, yeah, act on that code quick. Yeah. If, if you go to put in that, go to a Battleship Retention, or, sorry, uh, MUBI.com slash Battleship. And it's not there, it's your own damn fault. Exactly. You waited too long. You waited too Get long. on the bus. All right. We have some uh, correspondence. All right. Yeah. Um, David's oh. big into reading stuff on the air. Yeah, I love, and, I love going in cold. I and have what, no idea. Yeah,
0: and what if this letter is saying, I've, I've grown tired of you guys, I'm tired of listening, we're done?
1: Um... Does this one say that? (laughs) No, this is an extended joke about the last time we got a letter on Calgary Flames letterhead. Okay. And I made a joke that it was Yuri Hoodler who wrote it. Oh, okay. So I'm going to read this. I'm going to get through it quickly. Okay. Um, You're going to need to do an accent or something? No. What, well, like a Canadian accent? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no. Uh, dear Mr. Bax and Mr. Smith, it has come to our attention that you have received a notation drafted on Calgary Flames letterhead, which was then read on your radio program, Battleship Pretension. It's generous. After an internal investigation, it has been determined that the letter was written outside of our organization without our knowledge. The thoughts and opinions expressed in that notation are not those of the Calgary Flames Hockey Club, the front office, nor Mr. Yuri Hoodler specifically. Mr. Hootler has nothing but admiration for the Lord of the Rings trilogy of films. His favorite is Gimli. And while Mr. Hootler <laughs> is not, in fact, a native speaker of English, his diction is excellent. When he is not striving to be the most dominant player on the ice, he can be found volunteering at many children's hospitals. He enjoys reading He enjoys reading to the young ones. <laughs> the Calgary Flames would also like to clarify, we are not offering a sponsorship at this time. We are, however, a proven winner. If you would like to apply for a sponsorship or buy advertising space in the Scotiabank Saddledome, you can do so by calling 403-777-2177. We also have many opportunities with our partner team, the Calgary Hitmen of the WHL. That's the Western Hockey League. Got it. Uh, I know what it is. You don't know what the W. I is. I immediately forgot what it uh, was. <laughs> 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 uh, we would be delighted to have Battleship Retention join the Calgary Flames family. Please don't reach out to the Edmonton Oilers or Vancouver Canucks. We believe in free speech and equal opportunity, but not for supporters of those teams. On behalf of the entire Flames family, we'd like to, thank, we'd like to formally apologize for any confusion. We appreciate your interest in the Calgary Flames as we continue our campaign to bring the Stanley Cup back to Alberta. While your residence in Los Angeles leads us to believe your allegiance lies elsewhere— uh, we invite you to stop by sometime to see our lovely city and beloved hockey team. We know in our hearts, Flames fans are the greatest in the world. We think you may agree. We wish your program nothing but success. All the best, and as always, go Flames, go. Um, thanks, uh, whoever that was. Uh, not Yuri Hoodler. Um, <laughs> That's but yeah. very strange. Uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm uh, uh mystified by this.
0: I feel like Oh, yeah, this looks very This actually kind of looks uh, like official. I'm confused, David. What right, have you what have no you gotten way. us into? <laughs>
1: there's no way someone from the calgary flames office wrote his favorite is Gimli. you never know maybe like you know it's
0: like writing a letter to a little kid and just hey uh-huh. here's a little throwing, uh-huh. throwing you a bone
1: you know well um uh thank you to the calgary flames good luck you know you're uh i think in wild card contention right now to get into the playoffs Good luck. I hope that the Blues meet the Calgary Flames in the first round, and unfortunately, I hope the Blues knock them out. Uh, that's that's what, we, that's what can be hoped for right now, but we'll have to overcome the Predators to get there. Uh, speaking of um, <sighs> speaking of correspondence with our fans who are fans, I hate that. Why did I say that? Because our listeners, fans, that It's fine, our listeners who are outside of the United States. Okay, my thing last week about tooks for canadians and the plowman's lunch for brits has been a wild success i've yeah. gotten so much feedback on that i'm just i'm just tickled pink about it mm-hmm. so i want more international fans listeners whatever to comment tell us interesting things that we might not know yeah. about your uh your your country say not interna- just not say just
0: international things
1: no i, I want to know about your your food, do you have any weird lunches? I don't know. There might be lunches in Sweden or Chile or Laos. I don't know if you have any Laotian listeners, but that'd be great to find out what do they like to eat in Laos. Um, what is breakfast called? Yeah, what do you call breakfast? Yeah. What do you call a knit cap in Laos? Are um, those the only two things that you want people to <laughs> say? About breakfasts, lunches, <laughs> and knit caps. I throw on my and I eat my plowmans. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, that has been a, a great deal of fun. Absolutely. Now, um, I also want to tell you guys about tweaked which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. Uh, they're very stylish, very colorful, and they sound great. And you go to tweakedaudio.com, they're very affordable. But if you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension, they become that much more affordable because at that point they become one-third off and you, ha- and you pay zero in shipping charges. So that's tweakedaudio.com slash pretension. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Uh, it, is, it is time. All right, uh, it, we're into
0: it. Seven minutes in—that's not terrible.
1: Yeah, well, considering you read a whole letter, let's let's not waste our time talking about it. That's true. Yes. Um. So we're going to do this. This is going to have to be a
0: methodical, David.
1: Yeah. No, we've we've been doing this long enough. We have a there's a method to our madness. We have a system.
0: I guess so. And
1: we go from the most negative to the most positive. Mm-hmm. So we will start with each of us talking about our least favorite film of 2014 right and um now i I usually find the debate about best versus favorite a little bit tedious but i want to clarify here Mm. that this film is not a poorly made film right i just found it more objectionable than anything else i saw in 2014 okay and it's clint eastwood's american sniper Oh, I wish I had seen it. You haven't seen it. I haven't seen it yet. Well, I don't know what to talk about then. But uh, we well, got. Don't, have don't we... spoil it for me. We should... <laughs> I I already know how it ends. We should have. Um, uh, we should have gotten Scott Nye on who likes the movie. Yeah. Um, or and friend of the
0: show Jason Eakin found himself kind of torn, um, but it does seem to be. And I was talking with uh, with uh, Pat Healy recently, uh, backstage at the Beepies, which will will be airing. Sometime in the future. Um, but, uh,
1: Wait, that, that won't have aired by the time this goes up?
0: No. Okay. Uh, I, w- we'll do our best. I'll see what I can do. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, uh, and, and he said that he's actually the only person I know who whose objection to the film was artistic. Uh, like okay. he just said he found it to be, uh, actually kind of boring and and all that whereas almost everybody else I know whether they like it or not and this is where you know my own my own political leanings has ha, has caused me to read a number of articles by people that are politically conservative and really love and champion the film then of course I also know people like yourself that are politically liberal and it's your least favorite movie of the year and I wasn't interested in the movie at all uh-huh and now though I haven't seen it yet now it's like well, I've got to see it because artistically, I tend to lean more left. Politically, I lean more right. So, where am I going to end up?
1: But I want—I mean, again, this is why I wish you had seen it. But I don't know that—I don't know that I would think of my objections to it as being liberal. Mm-hmm. I think it's just they're just more human. Uh, I, I think that the movie is. It it almost, we talked about on the movie journal this week, we talked about 300. Mm-hmm. If it had been more like 300, it would have been not a better movie, but I would have been less disgusted by it. Because 300 doesn't question its own, the, the, the morality and motivations uh, of its characters or the, you know, the effect on their eternal souls <laughs> of the things that they're doing. Um, whereas American Psych, American psycho, American Sniper faints toward these mm-hmm. sort of discussions only to essentially write them off as if, as if to say like, yes, we've acknowledged post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. you know, or we, we've acknowledged the moral toll of killing, you know, 200 and something people, however many it was that he, that he has killed, um, you know, only to, uh, to, to come around to the idea that, this guy's this guy was right this guy was pure and Mm -hmm. uh in in the things that he did and i know i know scott disagrees with me and thinks that there's there's more to it than that um but i i I just feel like it it's summed up for me in the how quickly he becomes seemingly healed in the end uh when He's clearly undergone something uh something like post traumatic stress. I'm not the kind of doctor who can uh, diagnose post traumatic stress right in people. that's not my my place but he's clearly going through something mm-hmm. there's a scene um which I will readily admit is the best scene in the movie it's a great scene okay um when uh it's in between he did like three tours i think it's in between. Like tours two and three, or whatever, and he's at the auto mechanic getting his truck fixed with his, and he's there with his young son. And a soldier comes up to him and says, I, "You know, I, you saved me in my platoon or whatever. If you, you know, we all would have been dead if it weren't for you." And is thanking him and telling him what a hero he is. And he's as uncomfortable as a person could possibly be. Yeah. Uh, and it's a fantastic. As much as I dislike the movie, fantastic performance from front to back by Bradley Cooper. It's, yeah. it's great. Um. And it's it's just clear that he's it's clear that he's going through some shit, and then it seems like the movie he does like half of a session with a psychiatrist, and then starts volunteering to help other wounded vets, which is true. That's what Chris Kyle did, Um, but it gives the impression that it's like, oh, that's that fixed, (laughs) you know. So is is it almost like?
0: My comp- oh, Well, I think our complaint about Unbroken, that the truly interesting part of this per- – I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of interesting stuff about Unbroken. But that it really – it only pays mild lip service to a, a
1: crucial part of this person's story, whereas – I don't know because there's been – I don't want to get into the discussion about Chris Kyle's real story okay. because there's been a lot of talk about how – uh, uh, he was kind of a pathological liar and you don't, you know, the things Mm -hmm. that he said can't necessarily be trusted. There are things that he said in interviews in his memoir that are almost, that are pretty much like provably just lies Mm -hmm. from what I understand. I'm not, I'm not coming down on either side of this. I'm saying I don't want to get into this discussion. So I guess unlike unbroken, I don't, I don't want to think of it that way. I'm just thinking of it as a movie, just like, I don't know. We'll talk about that later. Um, so uh, I don't think it's about that that his story was more interesting. I just mean that um, I feel like this is a movie that's more about Clint Eastwood. It's it's more um, it's more argumentative than exploratory or investigative. Yeah, he's I think Clint Eastwood has a point of view about the war in in Iraq, um, which is not a totally objectional point of point of view which is that a lot of awful things happened there but ultimately he believes that we were there to do the right thing Mm -hmm. um and i'm okay i mean i disagree but i'm okay with that point of view but the way that he argues it is a bit disingenuous and um dismissive of some of the larger issues uh and so that's why i found it so objectionable but we don't we can't talk this long about every movie right let me ask you this actually real quick just to just to play
0: devil's advocate and again having not seen the film Uh, And we've talked about this before, which is bringing a filmmaker's past, you know, their career, bringing it into the current film. Do you find yourself instinctively wanting to either watch the movie again or at least give it a, like, think more about it? Because Clint Eastwood has shown himself in the last 20 years to actually be a pretty, pretty, maybe not nuanced, but a sensitive filmmaker. Yeah. You know, Unforgiven, Mystic River. The fact, the very fact that he made letters from Iwo Jima and not right. only flags of our fathers, yeah. uh, the Grand underrated Trino. Trino. Yeah, 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 like he has shown himself to be somebody who really wants to, like you said, ex- what he, what you say he doesn't do in this, explore the ramifications of behavior and that sort of thing. Uh, do you feel knowing that? Do you feel like okay, maybe I should, maybe I should look closer or think harder about this, or have I, you done that already?
1: Maybe I should, but I think I go, I went in. I mean I I just I just think the difference between this film and those films is that um they're they're humanistic. I think he's a humanist mm-hmm. usually, but I think he made this film to to argue a certain to make a certain argument. Okay. And maybe that's why it's at the bottom of my list because I just disagree with him so so fervently, hmm. but I also disagree with the way he makes the argument.
0: Okay. Uh I guess I got to see this movie.
2: Okay.
1: <laughs>
0: Boy, I hope I don't wind up loving it. I hope you do. I think it'll be great. <laughs> oh, good. All right. Unsurprisingly. So, by the way, I won't say it now, but at this point, everybody knows what your favorite film of the year is. I've said People it. know what my least favorite film of the year is, and that is, of course, <laughs> Saving Christmas.
1: Uh-huh. And But here's what I'll... But so that's, that's not the full title.
0: Well, here's the thing. It's... Uh, uh, okay. Let's see what IMDb has. It's touted on the posters as Kirk Cameron's Saving Christmas, which, of course, could mean this, this movie belongs to him or Kirk Cameron is in the process of Saving Christmas.
1: Yeah. Um, so IMDb just calls it Saving Christmas.
0: Right. And, and in the opening titles, that is how it comes across. So, um, so yeah, I'm just I'm content to call it Saving okay. Christmas because he's not listed as the director. The director is a guy named Darren Doan. Um And that's the thing. So we don't need to spend a lot of time on this. What I will say, because I've talked about it uh, plenty. Um, We did a whole episode about it uh, at More Than One Lesson. We tried to take it as seriously as we could, which is what I will try to do now. I've made a lot of jokes about it, and it's hard not to be hyperbolic about it. Here's what I'll say. Uh, And I I don't think I'm going to (laughs) – I think I'm probably preaching to the converted. Like any Christians that listen to this uh, podcast – Probably are on board with what I think about Christian film, but what I will say is uh, this is unacceptable. This <laughs> like this kind of movie is not. It, it could not be more half-assed. Um, if I'm if I'm feeling particularly cynical, I would say it's a cash grab that it feels rushed, um, just to maybe capitalize on on the Christmas time. Uh, but whatever the case may be, uh, it's just. Last week, I talked about a Christian film called Believe Me that succeeds artistically in almost everything it tries to do, and it is a movie first. It deals with characters first, and it certainly has a philosophy, but no more uh, than any other genuinely good movie, and it does not lead with that. And in the day, like, when a movie like that is being put out, and now that Christian, like Christian films, are have been made consistently for decades at this point, and a movie like Saving Christmas as half-assed as as it is, and don't remember my my third least favorite movie is God's Not Dead, um, with that damn Orson Welles documentary right in the right in the middle, um, but uh, and God's Not Dead is also really bad but it actually has a certain level of ambition partially because it's one of those large ensemble casts like a shortcuts or a crash or something like that and it actually has a couple of good performances and it's shot somewhat uh somewhat well uh and it's just a total script fail but um and so even something like god's not dead which is which is awful it's a very bad movie even that, you can at least see that they are making an effort. This there is no effort. It is it's lazy and it's awful and it is just and that's what I said. Like it like it, it sounds like I'm making a joke. It's not acceptable. No no movie, Christian or otherwise, it like this this almost you know what, this is like the Christian equivalent of uh those uh, Seltzer and Freeberg movies, which Ugh. didn't even feel like movies, they were so Ugh. lazy. Yeah. They did, you know, like they were uh, they were flabbergasting when you watch them, and you just think, how does this even qualify as a movie, as a spoof? It's almost experimental. It's so horrible, and yeah. that's how I feel about Saving Christmas. Uh, I and you know, I wish I could say like, oh, everybody should watch it. It's so terrible. I. It's, it is a movie that makes me very, very angry. Um, thankfully, I can make fun of it and I can laugh at it. But at its core, it frustrates me to know that this is viewed as acceptable by a lot of people. Um, and I'm very interested. I don't know if I mentioned it on this show. But in April, I'm going to be going to the International Christian Film Festival uh, where a little film called Fireproof debuted several years ago. And it is the biggest film festival in the Christian film world which still doesn't isn't saying much, but it's where, the biggest one. Where it, is it held? It's in Orlando. And uh, and so More Than One Lesson is going to have a table there. It's going to be manned only by me because I don't know anybody in Orlando. Um, and uh, I'm intrigued to see what conversations I'm going to be having because that's the audience I want to get but that I don't have yet. And so we'll see how it goes.
1: me okay. Christmas – worst worst all right moving on to the slightly less negative but still we're in the negative part yes does the, the episode gets more positive as it goes on yes let's talk about what we think are the most overrated films of the year okay um mine i talked about it in the movie journal just a couple of weeks ago it's justin simeon's dear white people um i have very largely beloved movie um that i have some qualms about Mentioning here mm-hmm. because its heart is definitely in the right place. Yeah. But it just felt like such a softball or a uh you know, um what's the word I'm looking for? Uh uh like uh like buckshot where you're just Oh, okay, it, yeah. It's it's imprecise, it's just sort of scatter shot. Scatter shot is the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Um uh, uh, uh in, in its attempt to uh point out that racism still exists um and the reason i said that i have some qualms about it is yeah that it's hard is in my place and also that like i talked about in the movie journal things like what happens at the end of this movie the 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 party the the college party on a college campus that's like <laughs> black people themed mm-hmm. and has white people putting on blackface oh. um and acting out stereotypes those really exist like yeah. more than once <laughs> that has existed so apparently there are people who need who need this pointed out to them mm-hmm. um and so i feel like i'm defending the movie more than i'm attacking it but i just i feel like it's 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 too long and scattershot especially in the first is first half once it fo- works up on the build up towards and then culminating in that party it actually becomes a better movie but it was after an hour of um me rolling my eyes um at, at things and i'm just I, I I often wonder if people listen to both this and the movie journal in general and if i'm repeating myself if i mm-hmm. talk about something but just the things it points out don't seem they don't seem that revolutionary to me uh i i just i know uh yeah uh i, I know not to, uh, like i wouldn't again i'm gonna repeat myself but i would never ask a black person if i could touch their hair just to see what it felt like right which happens constantly in this movie and apparently is is constantly happening to black people and so i feel awful about that yeah um i'm so on the fence and maybe this is like white guilt that i'm so on the fence about not liking the movie as much as i did mm-hmm. that i have to more like i have to defend it while i'm ta- talking about why it's overrated but um i wanted a movie that got under my skin um ah that was like a little uh was oh. like a little metaphor uh a <laughs> little literary device i used there um and, and 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 this this didn't it just felt like easy it just felt like shooting fish in a barrel for the yeah. most part um and and i mean the the sad thing is i don't know if the people who would have those kinds of parties are ever going to see this movie? Yeah, um, I guess that's preaching to the choir. Maybe that's a big part of why um, I didn't like it.
0: And you know, maybe because it is broad in general, maybe uh, it will find a large. There's a possibility it'll find a larger audience. Yeah, and it's and frankly, with a title like that, it is kind of funny. And so maybe I could see people renting it on Redbox, not knowing what it is, and maybe feeling a little bit personally convicted by some of the stuff in the film.
1: Yeah. But even, like, the Dear White People, like, the radio show, like, she says, Dear White People, like, stop dancing. It's like, oh, really? White people can't dance jokes? What is this, like, deaf comedy jam, like, 20 years ago? Yeah. Um, And I've I've talked about the content. I should, you know— i don't want mad Zoller sites to get pissed at me so i should talk about the way the film was made as well which is um very uh conspicuous very um calling attention to itself with its with its framing and uh and and it's sort of in your face like post scorsese post tarantino like Mm. uh Filmicness, you know what i mean a lot of and uh and also post wes anderson a lot of a lot of symmetry um which is a trope that i think we definitely need to move past like symmetry in itself is not like quirky or (laughs) or necessarily artful if it's used well you know symmetry uh, can also
0: feel quite suffocating
1: if you don't do it right right i mean or or if you do do it right if you want to like if you're stanley kubrick but not everyone's stanley kubrick um Zach Braff is not saying the Kubrick, for instance. No, no, I'm many not, people who's not Stanley the Kubrick. I'm not following you. Uh and so I, I just feel like it has uh, you know, it's about people who are like nineteen, and so it has all the all the intelligence and nuance of a nineteen year old's uh political opinions, and it tries to cover that up with a sort of um forced uh sophistication and gloss mm-hmm. in its presentation. Didn't care for it. Yeah. What about you? Well, you know, it's it's when we're talking
0: about overrated, that doesn't mean it's a movie we don't like. Okay. You know, like, for example, I like my overrated film more than I like my underrated film. Really? But the issue is, I just didn't like it as much as everybody else. Okay. And so, this is a film that I do like, and I will probably own and revisit. However... Guardians of the Galaxy is not the best movie of 2014, and I'm a big fan of James Gunn. You know, and I went in really. You, said, you made that noise like I'm saying something adorable. Oh, I'm just no, I'm just tickled by this. Okay, it is interesting that so far we've not overlapped
1: at all. Like I haven't yeah. seen your movies. You oh, you mean even mine. in just seeing stuff? Yeah, yeah. But uh, that will change seen... with my with my next one.
0: Oh, okay. I think um, uh, it will change with mine as well. So. Yeah, it's. I remember a lot of people were talking about uh, there. There's some early buzz that oh, maybe Guardians of the Galaxy will be nominated for Best Picture. You know, with the Oscars now being, you know, expanded to ten, and this is a very popular film and all that. Uh, and I believe the Writers Guild did nominate it for adapted screenplay. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but I know it did get a screenplay nomination somewhere. I don't recall, but. Um, but, yeah, uh, and people are saying, like, what? And then when the nominations came out, people were like, oh, look, how could Guardians of the Galaxy not be? It's because it's fine. Because it's a fine movie. <laughs> it's fun and enjoyable. The cat. It's a fun ensemble film. The cast really pulls it all together. But in the end, like, the franchise nature of it really – you can remove – as much as I enjoy the Thanos character and I think that Josh Brolin playing him is interesting, you can remove him completely and the film would be just fine. Anytime the film kind of makes kind of incorporates the franchise stuff, which I don't necessarily blame on James Gunn. In fact, I probably don't at all. Um, then the film stop the story mm-hmm. stops, the characters stop and we have to be like, "Okay, let's get through this which will pay off in 5 years." Um and it just but in the end like it just winds up being a, a really fu- it's just a fun ensemble action
1: movie. And that's it. Now Two years ago. Okay. Josh Whedon's The Avengers made your top ten of the year. Yes. Is that because it's a better film or because that was a worse year or both? Hmm. Let me think. Better film. Okay. I, I love think, The Avengers. It's among my top superhero movies of all time.
0: Yeah. I think it I think it's yeah, I think it's one of the best. Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, I think. Some of it I it could also genuinely be that for myself, and we actually wrote not dueling articles about it. But But Avengers, yeah. yeah, But like for me, because I had a history with these characters, it did actually kind of work together in an interesting way. Whereas this, we're being introduced to the characters, we're seeing them come together as a team. It still works really well, uh, except I didn't feel like I I had a good sense of who they were, but I didn't know them very well, especially. And that's the thing, uh, Chris Pratt, great. Uh, Bradley Cooper, great. Dave Batista, wonderful. That's what I hear. Uh, Zoe Saldana, great performance. Nothing character, absolutely nothing. That's too bad. Somebody declaring their motivation every ten seconds is not the same as us knowing who they are,
1: unless and, it's Anigo
0: Montoya. fine absolutely you know what yeah and that's partially because you know just uh, they're done wonderfully tongue-in-cheek by uh mandy patinkin but yeah it's a fine movie it's not the best of the year i don't think it's even the best uh, action movie or comic book movie of the year uh it's it has some nice moments there's there's more james gunn in there than i thought there was going to be i thought it was going to sand all of him off uh but there's some good stuff in there uh and it's again, it's an enjoyable movie, and maybe if I watched it again, as so many people have, maybe I would think it's amazing. But as it is, it's it's a solid B B plus. It is not an A plus movie. And it just So that's the thing. It's a again, a movie I really like, but it is
1: overrated. Okay. Well let's move into the positivity. Let's move into our underrated selections. From one franchise entry to another for right. me. Uh now one of my um uh, most off-visited topics is that people put too much emphasis on story or okay. plot. Those things are important for certain movies, not for all movies. Okay. This movie, most of the complaints are about the plot, um, and those are correct that this is only the first half of a movie. Okay. But all the other things about it are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking, of course, about Francis Lawrence's The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. Mm-hmm. That's my most underrated film of the year. Because when people get are getting caught up in the in the story in the way that it builds to a, uh a, it, it it builds to a cliffhanger in a way i think differently than catching fire did catching fire had a story and then ended with a cliffhanger yeah this one it i'm not gonna argue this is it builds builds to a big second act reveal and yeah. then ends that's fine but people are discounting its power um tonally and uh and thematically as a political work
2: Mm.
1: and to me that's what's most important about it is that it's along with its two predecessors is such a thoroughly conceived um uh political work to repeat myself um that i i continue to be in awe of the way that it its consistency from entry to entry even even after changing directors between one and two that um It's, it's, it's about, it's about revolution in a way that is not, I mean, that's such a huge idea that it's hard to make a movie about revolution that doesn't feel mythic, Mm -hmm. you know, to make a revolution feel um, relatable and immediate and uh, ground level, as Mm -hmm. it were. And it does that by coming to it from a character point of view and making Katniss's decisions about her being essentially a good person and having you know uh missteps (laughs) you know like killing some people (laughs) you know uh, doing things that are morally unsound but she's not a perfect person but she is her she's virtuous and her decisions are made in a on a micro level about the good of people Closest to her usually, Mm -hmm. but in a way that is so compassionate that it reverberates into the um, uh, into the into Panem at large. And on the other side, it also increasing this movie. This may I like this one so much more. She is more. She is wrestling more with the fact that her actions have consequences Mm -hmm. for people. That people are now acting out against the government because of things she's done and said and are dying for it. And she's more aware of that than she's ever been. And, um, the movie doesn't, doesn't shy away from that. I feel like it doesn't, there are so many anonymous bodies that you see fall in this movie and not in a way like, um, you know, a massive battle scene in you know, I don't know, Troy or whatever, where there is just CGI. Like, Francis Lawrence is showing us people dying. Yeah. Um, in a way that is, not sentimental but also not dismissive to show that these aren't these it's we're not going to think of these as just numbers but we're also not going to turn them into martyrs or saints either these are people who die they Mm -hmm. run into gunfire and i guess i guess that does make them martyrs yeah by definition but not in a way sometimes i feel like we make we make martyrs of people who have died in things like the holocaust or september 11th right. as a way to help ourselves mentally cope with it yeah um and this movie doesn't in my opinion it it avoids that um it shows us how senseless these deaths are uh if this because of how blind this this tyrannical tyrannical government is to its people um and it for the first time, let's Katniss realize just what she's doing and still make, still make the decisions to go forward.
0: Yeah. Uh, one thing that I like about the, the film, and I like a lot of things about the film is that um, how willing it is to expand the world, but also limit it. I mean, so much of the film takes place in an underground bunker you know Mm -hmm. uh the first two films at the very least once the games kicked in they're in these in what appeared to be you know the great outdoors and just and you could see you know oh there's rivers and trees and all these kind of things and now we're just in this very uh dour depressing gray uh almost sickening by which i or sickly, almost like a sickly world. And I like that they're, they're willing to their willingness to, to do that. Um, but I also really enjoy the fact that because the, the, all of the films are about distraction and the, and the power of media, the power of imagery. And that is why the government has the hunger games. Cause it gets people to focus on these other things And we view that as like, oh, that's so nefarious. But then we realize in this film, the heroes do it too because they they recognize the power of it, and it's just uh, and just and Katniss is just constantly being used, and that's one of the reasons why she she's being used first to put out thing, you know, to put out their messages that she doesn't agree with or believe in, and then to put out messages that she does. But even so she's aware that she's really just a kind of a pawn mm-hmm. and that is why she latches on to the personal relationships because it's the only thing that's real anymore she has to if she's going to retain any sense of herself and uh yeah it's it is a very very uh, effective film and i and i uh, applaud them for making a lot of the choices that they do um uh, are we ready to move on? I think so. Okay. My film, uh, my underrated, is a film that you have seen and you did not care for. Oh. Um, it is also based on a, young adult, on a young adult novel, and that is The Giver. Oh. Uh, this is not a perfect film. R- really, once the story kicks in, it becomes pretty run-of-the-mill and, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, a, I'm such a fan of the world-building. Uh, And as we talked about, I think when I first saw the film uh, a few months ago, um, having not read the book, I didn't really know what to expect coming in. Um, And so with something like this, it's so important to show how the world works. And they spend a nice long amount of time on showing uh, just – and it, it, it's, it's very – I feel like the movie Pleasantville owes a lot to the story of The Giver. It's about people who right. will say things like, I apologize. Just how pleasantries have become like an institu- a systemic thing and it's just as long as you say this, you don't have to mean it. It doesn't right. matter as long as you do this and people are always watching and doing it for your own good and that that sounds – it sounds so good but in actuality and when you and what i like is that when you actually see what's underneath it's terror it's uh, it's horrifying like the idea that they're actually killing children uh-huh. in, and the fact that i mean that's easy to write in a book but if you're trying to appeal to an audience watching a character that we that we like which is the main character's father yeah kill a child on screen. Now it's not like he throws it in a meat grinder or anything like that. Um, But, uh, but the fact that we see that on screen is really ballsy. That could be, that could turn off a lot of people. It turned me off a little bit. It's like, what did I, Oh my gosh, I can't believe what I just witnessed. And so like anytime it really explores every nook and cranny of this world from the bureaucracy to the things that, characters just accept Uh, I feel like for a good portion of the film it's one of the better young adult dystopian future movies I'd seen then the story kicks in and moves way too fast Mm -hmm. Um, but I do like and little things like when uh, the main character is uh, being given knowledge and when he's given the knowledge of how horrible life can be um, and suddenly because up until that point all he sees is beautiful color and how wonderful the world is and he looks at the life he's he's known and says why are they stifling this and then he sees the other side of it and sees oh okay i get it a little bit and so and so all of these but all of that is about discovery and about kind of just immersing us into this world and then of course then it then i feel like it becomes a, a much more run of the mill type of movie that I had very little interest in. And it bummed me out because the first hour of this film s very solid. And then clearly they just wanted it to be another Hunger Games or Maze Runner or whatever. But it's but it, I don't think it deserved the derision that it got because it does get a lot of things right uh, as far as the world building. But it's not a great movie. Well, I'm glad
1: that you liked it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you dismiss me, <laughs> um, we have to move on to honorable mentions, yeah, um, and I should have found my place beforehand uh, it's
0: important to know your place, David,
1: yeah, that's what the giver's
0: all about, and hunger games, actually,
1: okay, so uh i'm gonna yeah, i'm gonna go through these if of course, at this point, if I mention anything that's on your top ten. Or in your honorable honorable mentions, you can just stop me. We'll talk about it later. Right. Um, But this first one I know you haven't seen yet. Okay. Which is Wild. Okay. Uh, Jean-Marc Vallée's Wild. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just two years in a row that he's made a film, because he made Dallas Buyers Club last year, Yeah. made a film that seems to me like it could be... uh, you know fine at best it seems like it could be a movie of the week to biopic type of uh, type of story and he just man he just approaches everything from a uh uh, a humanistic and in a way i don't mean this word the way that it it literally means but a sort of spiritual way okay um uh, or, or whatever you name you want to give to um, the 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 parts of humanity that, that aren't um, tangible or even codifiable. Okay. Uh, and, and it you know with with Dallas Buyers Club, it again on the Dallas Buyers Club on the surface is a story about a homophobe who ends up working with and fighting for a lot of gay people and even becoming great friends with a transgender woman. Yeah. Um, and that could be really surfacy, you know, uh, really strident or you could, uh, what is it? Flawless. You could wind up with flawless. (laughs) Um, and, uh, this again is a woman who, um, goes into a tailspin when her mother dies of, uh, drug use and and then um infidelity from her uh, on her husband that's not the right way to say that infidelity on her husband um, <laughs> anyway um and then comes out of that with this cathartic decision to walk the pacific crest trail it mm-hmm. seems like it's i mean it's such a metaphorical journey that it almost seems like it was made up. Yeah. But it actually happened. And then Jean-Marc Valli isn't really interested in plotting out the plotting out uh, Cheryl's um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I, I, Cause I already said catharsis. So I'm trying to find another word, but she doesn't become revived step by step over the yeah. course of this journey in a way that is programmatic. Uh, cause it jumps around in, in, in time and good things happen to her on the trail and bad things happen to her on, on the trail. And she's a complicated person, much like, um, the characters in Dallas Buyers Club were anyway, we can't talk this much about all these films. Uh, it's fantastic. Okay. Okay. Um, next round of mentions is citizen four. We'll talk about it later. Okay. Next round of mentions. Did you see the Rover? Uh, yes, I did. Okay. Will we talk about it later? No.
0: Okay. Uh, did you not like it? I liked it a lot. It it didn't quite make my uh, my honorable mentions, but it was close. Uh,
1: yeah, I, um, uh, I I went not expect I because it's the guy who made Animal Kingdom, mm-hmm. which is a very very good movie that got a lot of praise. But it never, I don't think it was on my top ten that year. Right. Never I, like I think it was actually on mine that year. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it's it's a it's a very good movie. I what, Animal Kingdom is a very good movie in a genre or subgenre that is somewhat familiar. Yeah. The rover is something new. Um not entirely new. Right. but it's something uh I'm, I'm having real trouble with vocabulary today. Uh movie is that what you're looking for? <laughs> no, it's it, it's uh, it's it's unique, it's distinguished okay. and distinctive. Um in that Yeah, okay, so we've seen post-apocalyptic Australia before. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But this is not really interested in exploring. You know, we find out there was some sort of incident. It's been 10 years. It's like 10 years after the fall, I think, is what it says at the beginning. Yeah. We don't know what it was. And uh, David Michaud isn't interested in telling us what it is. He essentially wants to remove um, certain things like law and um uh cultural you know um what what's the word people say uh the mores uh the contract the uh social, social contract he's yeah. he's removing things like that so that he can essentially tell a western with it, cars absolutely Yes. <laughs> um and uh and he strips everything away to the point where you can really focus on these two characters who are uh I mean not neither one of them is a very likable person. No. But they're both incredibly interesting. And uh alike like with wild like with Jean Marc Valley, he doesn't become overly um interested in sort of literally exploring the backstory of Guy Pierce's character. No. Yeah. Who I think was probably a decent person once, who's mm. been um turned Hard and cold by a number of different things. Yeah. Certainly whatever the fall is did something to him. Yeah. But also his wife um, died at some point. Yeah. Um, and there, are, there's another thing. Yeah. I guess this movie has sort of a uh, – I hesitate to call it a twist ending. It has a reveal at the end yeah. that I found incredibly moving and informative. I know some people didn't like it as much. Um I, I kind of there. love
0: it because to me it's, it's almost like the, re- the reveal at the end of citizen Kane. We're like, Oh, that actually doesn't explain that much. <laughs> like, yeah, it explains something. Yeah. But it um, actually brings up a lot of questions as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, again, I don't want to spend forever talking about these movies, but, um, I have a thing as we'll see with the next one. I, uh, well, we'll go, oh, let's get into the next one. My next film is the guest, uh, We'll talk about it later. We
0: can talk about it now.
1: No, we'll talk about it later. Okay. Um,
0: I mean, if you were going to transition into something, well, just in general,
1: I like, I like violent movies, but I don't like violent movies the way that I did when I was younger. Yeah. I like violent movies that are kind of a kick in the gut. Um, and the Rover is rough. I mean, it's not, it's not like John wick where it's people getting shot in the face for 90 minutes, which I like that too. Um, because it's, you know, stylized and I'm okay with it. Um, there are long periods where nothing violent happens in the rover, but when it does yeah. it's uh it's just it's just sickening and um yeah. uh and sad uh yeah. and the guest blends that a little by being a genre exercise mm-hmm. but uh that I think still carries the weight of its uh, uh of it of its violence very much so yeah. we'll we'll talk more about that later yeah um and then I think yeah my final honorable mention which i'm almost entirely sure you haven't seen uh it's nominated for best animated film it's called song of the sea i have not seen and it's uh completely magical it's uh the same people who made the secret of kells a few years ago which i quite liked yeah um but this to me is a step above that Uh, i talked about it on the on the movie journal um it it really just uh I think there becomes a, with certain animated films, with a lot of the animated family fare that we get, there's a, there's a sameness, there's uniformity to Mm. like, which seems so, it seems so wrong to me that so many animated films look generally the same Mm. because you can do anything. Why not change things up? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, And Song of the Sea uh, has its own, its own vision. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not a, I don't think it is a, traditional 2d animated film but it brings in elements that are that clearly look two-dimensional in a way that um doesn't detract but actually just sort of adds to the um storybook quality of the magic of this world Mm -hmm. uh and it's uh, you know it's a it's a story about a brother and a sister which i um i I have a sister (laughs) i like that uh (laughs) and I, i have a i have a younger sister um and uh i i I really like the family dynamic um and i'm a big fan of brendan gleason oh absolutely okay
0: um what are yours all right so my uh my first honorable mention is kelly reichardt's night moves okay i didn't see it no i think you'd love it um it's a really wonderful film um i've only seen one of uh kelly reichardt's films before which was um Meeks cut off, which I enjoyed not as much as this though, and this and I don't want to spend too much time on any of these, but uh, but what I like about it is um, and you you actually kind of mentioned this with your hunger games uh, discussion, which is you have characters who so badly want to make a difference. Uh, they are basically going to blow up a dam because they they believe that this particular dam and maybe any a number of others are hurting the environment, they're unnecessary and all that. And these characters are young. They're a little bit immature. They remind me of, you know, they're not high schoolers, but they kind of feel like that. Um, And just that kind of sort of that kind of impotent rage you have at the world. And somebody comes along and says, well, it doesn't have to be that. You can actually do something. And it might be a small thing, but it's something. And so they do that. And. You know, you watch them, and you kind of, uh, you know, I found myself maybe being a little bit judgmental of them, but not a lot, um, and feeling like, oh, I remember, you know, I remember what it was like to to wish you could do something, just kind of strike a blow and say I was here and I did something. Uh, but it's also them eventually coming to realize that you can't do something, and it has, and it only ever has the effect you wanted. Um, mm-hmm. That's very rare. It will there will always be. Uh, a consequence that you did not—an uh, well, unintended consequence. There will almost always be that. It could be positive, it could be negative, but very like something that you learn as you get older and more mature is, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this because there's I have blind spots, and so it's these characters dealing with that, uh, and it's a film that just sort of that views it all from a distance. Um, which I which I actually like quite a bit, um, and I don't think it judges the characters. I think it judges the situation. Um, and the guy from Jersey Shore. Y- yes, <laughs> okay. yeah. There's actually a surprisingly long <laughs> sequence where Peter Sarsgaard's like, you know, what show I just watched the other day, um, but uh, and the acting is top notch. And I will mention specifically, Peter Sarsgaard uh, is an actor that I feel like has not yet gotten his due people know who he is they see him in stuff like the uh an education and shattered glass and any and a number of other things uh but i don't know it's i keep waiting for something for him to kind of break through and people realize almost like a mark ruffalo that oh wow this this guy is something special sounds like he needs to play a superhero maybe he played a super villain in green lantern but oh. nobody gives a shit about yeah, that i already forgot so okay that was night moves uh next one for me is whiplash Okay, let's talk about it okay uh it's a film that is that asks a lot of very important questions about what are you willing to do to be good? what are you willing at, at what you do whatever it might be in this case, it's a kid who wants to be a good drummer, but it could be how far are you willing to go to be a good artist to be a good uh you know any any a good uh hockey player or whatever it is um, and you know you and I talk about uh, or or anybody who loves film you know you look at the the films of Woody Allen or Robert Altman or Orson Welles or any you know, any number of other auteurs who make some of the best films ever and you hear about them just being monsters in some way yeah um and you just think like oh i don't like that but look at these amazing movies they made and you start to wonder are do are these two connected um and so it's a film that kind of explores that, uh, and I think great performances all around. I think J.K. Simmons is great. I actually do like Miles Teller quite a bit. That's um, that's
1: yeah. That's the. I think this movie is great, or yeah. or at least very very good. But mm-hmm. um, as I've said before, Miles Teller doesn't do it for me, and yeah. uh, that's that's the weak spot. That's what keeps the movie from being uh, maybe what kept it out of my top fifteen. I do think that there are certain script
0: moment that what kept it out of my top 10 there are certain script choices that feel like a first script like the car everything about that car accident seems like something that's like eh, i recognize thematically what you're trying to do but i feel like any like every character involved would not do what you're having them do in reaction to the car accident
1: you mean the aftermath? The aftermath, like I mean, and not the immediate aftermath. The repercussions in his life when he goes back uh, to New York is that what you're talking immediate
0: about. Immediate and uh, all of the above. Because but like, the
1: second, think... yeah, with the latter thing, I definitely agree that he does something later that um, that I hated <laughs> because I didn't feel like this is the character that I was watching. I think I'll say this.
0: I think um, I mean, how, how honest, how open can we be? Okay, so after this car accident, he comes. He comes to this concert. And in spite of the fact that he is bleeding and he is not at his best, J.K. Simmons still puts him in. And I feel like that is not something his character would do. Even if he is oh, the see, best drummer, he is, he is limited. And, and also, him drumming and not doing well does not actually need to happen in order for Miles uh, Teller to still have his, re- his extreme reaction. He could have had that reaction because of J.K. Simmons saying... I'm not putting you in. Look at yourself, and then Miles Teller is just finally explodes. And so I'm being
1: very specific. Sorry, everybody, spoilers. Um, Yeah, but I don't think he. No, I, I actually disagree with you. That I think that uh, I forget J.K. Simmons character's name. Fletcher. Uh, yeah, I think Fletcher would have put him in because to leave him out would have maybe have been misinterpreted as concern, and that's the last thing he wants. And so he needed him to fail. And I think he's willing to risk failing this competition because he believes that miles teller or whatever his character's name is that i don't recall <laughs> um mm-hmm. uh he believes that he's great mm-hmm. um, and believes that he's worth putting in the kind of effort that he thinks is necessary and that's the question of the film is is that necessary or is that even tolerable if the result is great art and i guess that's that that comes down to our interpretation jk simmons character and
0: how far he's willing to go even if it's public humiliation and failure of a competition on his own part uh in order to teach somebody else a lesson like i don't i i'm not sure if i would go that far but so much about the film is amazing like
2: yeah while uh, i while
0: i believe while certain there are certain script things that i feel like oh okay that feels like a first script this doesn't feel like a first film at all um and it just uh i don't know
1: the editor's name but uh that person
0: deserves all the praise solid Moving on. Uh, Next for me is Richard Aowati's The Double. I didn't see it. Uh, I'll try to speed these up. I'm sorry. Uh, It's a really... I was talking earlier about The Giver and how uh, establishing the world um, is a big deal for me. I like that a lot. And this is a world... This feels very much like Brazil. It feels uh, Kafka-esque, even though it's an adaptation of a Dostoevsky story. Um, But it's... It almost always takes place at night or indoors, and it's just this character. Jesse Eisenberg uh, plays a character who is just a drone at an office. You don't totally know what he does, but you feel like you get the impression that anybody could do it. It doesn't matter. He doesn't matter, and he wants to, and then uh, his double shows up, who's everything he wishes he could be. So there's a lot of surrealism there. There's a lot of dark humor in there. Um, but more than anything, I think it's just it's it's just a very moody, effective film that when you laugh, you kind of choke on your laughter because it's just so damn depressing. Um, but it's just I forget what what film I was describing as sickly. Oh right, uh, the bunker in in Hunger Games. This mm. film has kind of this this piss yellow look to it uh i'm sorry to put it in those terms it's the only thing i could think of uh that it just seems it seems almost jaundiced just like these characters are never going to be as healthy as they ever could be never as happy as they could be and that everybody is just living a life of quiet desperation and it just really comes through and it's just a very uh, just a very effective film and uh I highly rec- if, if everything I said sounds fun to you, uh, <laughs> I would highly recommend it. Um, next for me is Edge of Tomorrow. Okay. All right. Which is a film that we've talked about actually quite a bit on this show, so I feel like we don't have to go into a lot of detail. But it's, I think it's just a film that is written beautifully. I think it's very funny, uh, but not funny only for its own sake. Uh, I think it finds humor in... In the main character, in the story that's happening, humor in just sort of the futility of war. Um, and, but at the same time, the action sequences are a lot of fun. And none of this, nothing conflicts with, with itself. And action and comedy almost always does. Like one thing will usually overwhelm the other. But in this case, where there is comedy and there is action, uh, they happen at the same time. And I think Tom Cruise does a wonderful job, uh, as he always does, um, just playing a character that has a great deal of confidence and and he is kind of our escort through this world and through this story. Um, it does it did drop out of my top ten partially because you know the ending when yep. when the initial sort of conceit of the story goes away, which it inevitably must, so that there can be stakes. Um,
1: but it has the opposite effect. It to yeah. Me. It, yeah. To me, it takes away the stakes
0: when that happens. Partially just because it becomes every other movie. Yeah. Um but up until then, uh I'm I'm I love it. I find it invigorating. It's a remarkably watchable film and a very rewatchable film. Uh my uh my last honorable mention, uh, we will talk about later, it is Selma. So Okay. We can
1: move on into our top ten. Here we go. Watch out. Number ten. Um man, I feel like to some extent these movie journal things as much as i love doing them have taken some of the wind out of our sails for talking no about no question movies, about it because this is something we like just talked about uh you haven't seen it um unless you watched it in the last week um which i know you didn't because of the movie journal exactly um it's uh Susanna fogel's life partners okay starring gillian jacobs i'm pretty sure it's gillian and leighton meester and um i think something that something that gets forget forgotten is that movies that look that and feel like huge achievements mm-hmm. um be they something fantastical or just something you know fantastical like a you know the the Hunger Games are just something that um looks big like the Homesman or whatever those kind of movies we recognize wow, look at that you know the consistency of vision and and um and all the work that went into maintaining that world and uh, all the effort to make that movie so big movies that don't look like that are still completely created fictional worlds in most cases and need just as much attention. Mm-hmm. They just don't look like it. Yeah. And life partners blew me away because it's seems so, um, everyday and low stakes, but is such a perfectly conceived, uh, world, um, not that it's another world, but a group of friends and their sort of milieu and these two friends in particular and the way they communicate with one another and their relationships with their own families and with uh, the other friends in their circle is as perfectly conceived as something in like a Stanley Kubrick movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and I found it so immersive um, and such a fascinating place to to spend time in uh, that it uh, it was – Uh, incredibly moving to me and we'll see other things on my uh, uh, other things on my list that are that are like that that are um um ostensibly smaller worlds um but uh life partners is again fully realized but it's also very funny Mm -hmm. um it uh takes place in minneapolis which is just not a city you see rec- represented on screen very often no not really um it seems like movies will be set in small towns over the all over the country but when movies are set in big cities in america it's new york los angeles sometimes chicago yeah there's not a lot of other cities that often but- chicago if they want to shoot if they want it to be in new york new york but can't afford <laughs> right. it mm-hmm. um there's not a lot of other cities that get that much representation. Uh, and so Minneapolis, that's a cool one. It's cool for, for a movie to be set in Minneapolis. Um, but it also, uh, it relates a kind of human relationship. I just said relates and relationship. I should probably start stop editing my own sentences out, out loud as I say them. Um, it's probably not interesting for the listener. Um <laughs> Maybe spend uh, another five minutes on it. See, yeah. <laughs> see what they think. Um, it gets across a relationship that is not one that's particularly familiar to me, but that is so specifically realized that it feels universal and feels I'm completely invested in it. <laughs> Which is the idea, and you, you, you. This is the sort of thing you see in movies a lot, mm-hmm. or TV shows a lot. But it, this is committed to where, like, this is going to be the story we tell. Um, two great friends who grow apart naturally, not from an argument or from a falling out or anything like that, but because one of them becomes attached, one of them gets into a relationship. Um, and this is the kind of thing that happens to friends all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't want to go into too many personal stories, but, um, um, my wife has a very good friend who i am now friends with yeah. but did not care for me for quite a bit when we were first dating because i think i kind of i was the adam brody of this film uh, adam brody is the guy who starts dating yeah. uh, gillian jacobs and drives them apart and like i was keeping my wife away from her friend they were like they would hang out every week they would go to bars together they would like that was they spent their time together i came in between that um and this is presenting that story from a side that i don't that I don't see. And I hate to, I don't want to make this a, a gendered thing, mm-hmm. but I think to some extent it is. And I, I, the reason I don't want to make it a gendered thing is because I don't necessarily think that men and women are hardwired to have different kinds of friendships. I think it's, um, it's, I think it's just society, man. <laughs> um, but no, I, I mean, I, I think we adapt in different ways. Mm-hmm um to the culture in which we're raised um and as a result men don't tend to have or you know or boys don't tend to have that kind of close friendship that you feel like um i mean people say you know bros before hoes or whatever but like male friendships don't really like end because in in a bitter like acrimonious way yeah because of because of that sort of thing
0: yeah i mean, um, I, I do think of instances where i've been close friends with somebody and then he starts dating someone and i see him less and i lament that but then it's just okay well our friendship looks different now and that's
1: exactly it's not like it's not like you're going through a little breakup of your own right which is what this is like um and it's again the fact that men don't do this as as often as women do is i still think more it's far more cultural than biological or anything like that um, I don't want to get into like eighties comic, like men are like this women like <laughs> women are like this type no. of discussions. Um, but it still is David. What, what about shopping? Do women be shopping? I've heard as much. Okay. All right. Uh, but what I want to talk about <laughs> is airline food. Um, <laughs> hacky. That's like me pointing out the hackiness of airline. Oh, food it's the jokes hackiest is thing. Hacky. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, it, it's, it's a look at a kind of friendship that I don't actually have. Um, and that uh, is very interesting, and also at the same time, it's about two people who are not. These aren't just like stand-ins for. Oh, this is what girls are like. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like these are both fully realized individual characters. Yeah. Uh, on On their own, um, and I just I just want to be friends with them, especially with Leighton Meester's character, who's hilarious. You know they have a they have a standing. She and Gillian Jacobs character have a standing every week. They get together to watch America's Next Top Model. Mm. and gillian jacobs when she starts dating adam brody invites adam brody to watch it with her without telling leighton meester and so leighton meester shows up and she's trying to pretend she's not mad but she mm-hmm. is uh but she says it's just if i'd known he was going to be here i wouldn't have worn these pajama pants with a hole in the dick <laughs> <laughs> um uh, that sort of thing is why i think i'd be friends with leighton meester's character yeah. uh anyway uh yeah it's fantastic and it's just very funny it has a yeah great um, cast beyond that it's not just those three it's also mark firestein gabby sidibay um kate mckinnon in uh one scene knocks it out of the park um contender maybe if not uh, and she was not nominated for a bp for the uh, kate best cameo award but it would be eligible yeah um and then um abby elliott is great
0: Hmm. let me ask you this uh this is something that i've i've thought about in the past and this this you know, speaks to gender and the way gender is is uh, different friendships is portrayed on screen. Um, even though Leighton Meester's character is a lesbian, correct? Yes, that's okay. Right. So even in spite of that, they are still friends. Yeah, but by, by which I mean, like, it sounds to me, having not seen the film, that it is not implying that Leighton Meester feels upset because she's attracted to Gillian. No,
1: in fact, that
0: were it that two, hadn't
1: even occurred to me, were
0: it two men, both of them even. Even if they were straight, I feel like it is often put out there that – now, maybe not in a comedy, but like in a – actually, you know what? Sometimes comedy. Damn it. Uh, Like Chasing Amy? Yeah. That if there are two men that are close – there's a possibility that one of them might be attracted to the other one. Yeah. And God help you if one of those characters is actually gay. Yeah. And then the straight one finds a woman, and then the gay, then you wind up with you know Chuck and Buck, which is actually a really good movie. Um, I feel like that's something that.
1: Uh, yeah, I, that's interesting because I, you're right, and yet the movie so doesn't even consider that that yeah. it didn't even occur to me. It's one
0: of the reasons, by the way, I hate the term bromance, um, <laughs> because it says, oh, it's the. It, like, oh, this movie, it's about these two guys who grow close. It's like a bromance. Like, you know what? You're really, t- you're really undercutting the idea that straight men or even not straight men can have a completely close friendship right. that is not actually based on physical or sexual attraction. You're really undercutting that, right. which maybe m- might make some men uh, pull away from that if it, if it presents itself in their, li- in their lives. Um, anyway, that's a conversation for another time. Uh, but it's something I found interesting, uh, that at no point did you think even the character, even though the character is a lesbian, they do not put it out there as a possibility and it didn't even occur to you.
1: Yeah. There's one joke early on where they go to the pride parade and Gillian Jacobs is like, they walk in with like their arms around each other and Gillian Jacobs is like, oh, I better not do that. I would hate to like get in your way. Yeah. and yeah. She's like, uh, yeah, she's like, yeah, don't cock block me. And she's like, wouldn't it be? Vagina block? She's like, no, it's still cock block. They just never changed it.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, we good to move on? Yep. My number 10. All right. Let me explain something <laughs> before we move on. Because this is the... This is the let's see. 11, 12, 13. Yeah, this is the fourth fucking year in a row that this has happened. Um, <laughs> 2011, my 10th favorite movie was Entrance, which was directed by people... That we'd had on the show. Oh, okay. 2012, in my top five was Compliance, which starred Pat Healy, who's uh-huh. been on the show several times. Uh huh. Last year, uh-huh. Room 237 sure. was in my top 10, directed by Rodney Asher, who'd been on the show a couple of times, by the way. Right, where is this going? Number 10, Yale Cats Cheap Thrills, starring friend of the show, Pat Healy.
1: Pat Healy comes back yeah. to the top 10. So Tyler.
0: I will say. As I've said before, but I've, I'm feeling bad about it now, and I feel like I should repeat it. This is not... <laughs> these movies don't wind, the, don't wind up in my top ten because I know the people that are involved in them. Chances are I know the people that are involved in them because I love these movies so much. Um that is why yeah. we sought out, you know, Patrick and Dallas to be on the show. That's why we sought out Rodney to be on because they make movies that I like, and I would like to talk to them as as creative people. So, and nobody has ever accused me of that. But when you when I notice this pattern, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start projecting onto you and just addressing this. Um, you saw Cheap Thrills, right? No, I didn't. No, you didn't. Okay. Um, yeah, I love this movie. I think it's very effective. I think. Uh, even when the time comes and we do that episode that I was talking about that I don't want to do but that other people have said we should in which we talk about movies made during the Obama administration and and sort of movies that reflect that era, Cheap Thrills will definitely be a part of the conversation because in the last few years there's been a big a big discussion about the, the 1%, the haves and the have-nots and stuff like that and this is a film that is very much about that but what I... One of the things that I like about it is, is the – almost like the Hunger Games, the idea that uh, the people who are in power, it could be the rich, it could be the government, it could be any number of things. The key to them staying in power is to not to just you know, satiate or quell any kind of uh, issues that the people not in power have. It's to recognize, oh, they, they still want an enemy. They still have that energy that they want to – that negative energy that they want to put towards something. So rather than try and act like it doesn't exist, I just need to direct it to somebody other than me. So then you – so that's when you get the idea of these two – Pat Healy and Ethan Embry going against each other in these contests. But of course – and that's very funny. But underneath, there's a judgment Uh, of each other because Ethan Embry's character is they, these guys knew each other in high school and their lives took very different paths. Pat Healy became a family man who is trying to make ends meet and is not doing well. Ethan Embry is a guy who kind of went his own way, got on the wrong side of the law is something of a low life and is sort of a Rocky Balboa before he became a a, a champ. And so just a strong arm kind of guy. So they, they run back into each other and they're just sort of talking about their lives and, they, and they're exchanging pleasantries. And you do see this kind of flash in both their eyes of like, oh, yeah, I remember. You used to be a part of my life back when such and such, when I thought it was going to be this way and it turned out the other way. Um, and so as these two characters are pitted against each other by Dave Keckner, and I'll talk about his performance in a moment, um, as they're pitted against each other, it's not merely that – oh, I want to win this money, They just their differences, even though they're way more similar to each other than they are to him, and the idea of robbing him is something that does occur to them, don't get me wrong, but um, they start to find more and more rifts, and they start to really examine each other's lives and just judge each other. It's not just, hey, let's compete for this. It's, you don't fucking deserve this. Look at how hard I'm working. You don't know what it's like. And it becomes much it just becomes so much uglier, because as you know they they do some pretty horrible things, and that's very ugly, but not nearly as ugly as the stuff they say and And the fact that all of this is happening while we're laughing uh, makes the film so much more effective and um and kind of horrifying and so much more um. Engaging on a on a thematic level, on a political level, um, and everybody is operating at like the height of their powers. Pat is doing wonderful work. I mean, he kind of playing a t- the type of character that he's come to to play in stuff like Great World of Sound, which is sort of the everyman. But because Pat, as we see in Compliance, can have something of a dark side. Yeah, we see a lot of that as well. Ethan Embry is doing. Really great work. As I mean, we saw something like we kind of saw this in Brotherhood, Mm-hmm. and in the the, the, in,
1: the four of us who watched Brotherhood, yeah, yeah. Uh,
0: and we see it in the guest as well um, for the short time that he's that he's yeah. in the film uh, that he can he really excels at playing these guys who maybe used to be decent but have they're too old for that and they don't have the time for it anymore. Uh, Sarah Paxton, who's so adorable in the innkeepers, sheds that. And oh yeah, is just this. Somehow she's the most infuriating one of all because she's the one who just sits back like some kind of Roman emperor and just wants to be amused. Uh, and Dave Keckner really finds. I like it anytime an actor, especially, is able to do what we know they are capable of doing, but layers on a lot of other things and makes them a full fledged, uh, fully realized character and his character is obnoxious and silly and has and is always in power, and we kind of hate him, but we also get a strong,
1: strong sense that he really hates himself as well. And See, that's that's actually, I mean, there's plenty of reasons for want to see this movie. That's actually really fascinating to me because Dave Koechner is someone that I know to be hilarious, but I don't normally think of as a great actor. Not that he's a, I think of him as yeah. a shitty actor, but I think of him as um a guy who goes for the joke first and foremost. Yeah. And often gets cast as similar characters that are similar to one another. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's not that much difference between Champ from Anchorman and uh, what's his name from The Office? Todd Packer. Todd Packer. Yeah.
0: And he's, and he's very <laughs> similar to that. But it's sort of like I was talking about last week with the uh, Weeknd and Jeff Goldblum being, ver- being almost the essence of Jeff Goldblum, but also trying to explore what that would mean. Right. Uh, how somebody arrives there and what they're like underneath. So – Everyone's doing great work for a film that could not be more relevant to the culture we live we live in, and uh, really, I think adds to that conversation where you come to realize again the idea of uh, of the um, uh, Hunger Games, which is you know don't forget who the real enemy is. And yeah. while I don't say, while I you know I don't think the enemy is rich people. The enemy is just – it could be any – it's not inherently rich people because there are plenty of great rich people out there just as there are plenty of terrible poor people. But the people that are in power and are looking to stay in power at all costs – it could be a rich person. It could be somebody in the government. It could be any number of things. Those are and, – and stand to gain a lot by pitting you against each other. Those are the real enemies, not this other person who really has a lot more in common with you than you would think.
1: All wait, right. wait, did I did I just get like too political there at the end? No, are you kidding me? I just no. Look, look. If you think that's too political in like fifteen minutes or so, we're gonna be talking about abortion. So you should probably get ready. Oh,
2: good. But All not right. yet.
1: Um, I don't remember the <laughs> abortion scene in Birdman. <laughs> that's weird. Um, number nine for me. We gotta eventually get to some films that we've both seen i know i don't um, know if there's gonna be a lot this year yeah there just aren't there's th- and i think that's exciting though to know how varied this year is but it does mean that this is gonna be a longer episode yeah. so let's get to it um i pulled up the guy's name be, uh, i'm still gonna butcher the pronunciation i'm sure but this is abderamane sissako's timbuktu okay um which i believe is nominated for a best foreign language film oscar yes um and rightfully so uh it's not It's not my favorite of the best foreign language film Oscar nominees. Uh, We'll get to that later. But um, this is this is sort of the what I was talking about with with uh, um, Life Partners. This is this is different. This is very conspicuously a big, grand work of art. You Mm -hmm. know, and you almost can't help shooting in the the Sahara. I guess is that the Sahara. I don't know. I don't know where different deserts are. I'm dumb. Mm -hmm. But wherever Timbuktu is, although this wasn't shot in Timbuktu, it was shot in um Mauritania, which is a neighboring country. Timbuktu is a city in Mali. Is that right? I have no idea. And then I wish the, I did. uh one country east of that is Mauritania. That's where this was shot. But it takes place in Timbuktu. Um and it is Based on or at least inspired by real events where for a time um, a few years ago, for just a few months, Islamic militants completely took over the city of Timbuktu and were running it under a very strict um, form of Sharia law. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this movie (laughs) sort of argues that the reason their interpretation of Sharia law was so strict is because they're occupying a place that's already Muslim. Yeah. And so they just, in order to exert their control, yeah. they just have to make shit more and more strict. Oh boy! Um, and so there's, you know, the and and it has. I mean, there's a there's a humor to it. There uh, absurdity is, I think, the word because these rules become so strict that you can't. You're not allowed to play soccer, which is like not <laughs> a rule, um, uh, but they're not allowed. And so there's a part where they've taken away the soccer ball so there's kids essentially playing like air soccer like running up and down like kids running up and down the pitch but it's beautiful that's that's the thing about this movie is it's funny and absurd but presented with ostentatious beauty um that that i love and so you get these shots of these kids moving like a swarm but you don't there's no ball that they're chasing. They're just chasing their own idea of the ball. So they just look like a flock of birds moving up and down the field. And it's really beautiful. Mm. Um, But then one of the Islamic, one of the occupiers, I guess, comes by on his motorcycle, so they all stop and pretend they're just exercising, pretend they're doing like, like toe touches and like yeah. jumping jacks and stuff. So it's it's funny, you know. The part that there's a guy whose job it is to walk up and down the streets with like a bullhorn and announce whatever the new restrictions are. You know, wh- women now must wear gloves in the marketplace, including the women who are selling fish and the women they arrest a woman for not wearing gloves while selling fish. And she's like, I'm supposed to wear like, she's saying this in uh, a different language, but she's saying, really, am I supposed to like wear gloves while I'm reaching into like the water? Like it doesn't, doesn't make any sense to wear gloves while you're selling fish, but the doesn't, doesn't matter to them. Um, and that's actually, I mentioned language. Uh, that's another thing is that there are a lot of languages, different languages spoken in this movie. Um, and so the difference between the, People who live in the city or people who live in the outskirts, outskirts and the occupiers, the, the militants, all speak different languages. And so there's all these levels of interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the movie doesn't take any shortcuts. So every scene, these scenes get, like, comically drawn out where someone has to speak, the interpreter speaks, the other person speaks, the interpreter speaks. Like, <laughs> these drawn-out yeah. conversations. Um, and I'm talking – so I'm talking about the beauty and the absurdity of it. But the movie becomes more – impactful uh emotionally and intellectually when it forces you to consider yes this this stuff is absurd but we're not making this up this really happened and there were real consequences and it starts to get more and more dark where you see people get whipped and then eventually you see two people get buried up to their necks and stoned to death um and uh the the consequences become very real um you know and one of the militants decides he wants to marry one of the local people and so he has to sit down with the family and asks the parents for the daughter's hand they say no and so the militants decide well we get to decide if this guy's a good muslim or not so we're yeah. just going to kidnap her so they just steal this girl This like teenage girl um uh even you know while the the actual iman at the at the mosque, I don't know if I'm getting that right, um, is pleading with them like this is not, you know, please try to calm this down a little bit. We're we're all Muslims here. Yeah. Uh it, it's a it's it's a fantastic film that is visually stunning and um again, emotionally and intellectually uh very provocative.
2: Hmm.
1: That sounds great. I knew nothing about that movie. It
2: just <laughs> occurred
0: to me. Um okay, we good to move on yep my number nine i don 't know if you 've seen this film okay that is jonathan glazer's under the skin i have i have not seen it i think i think you would like it I think you would really like it but i 'm not hundred percent sure okay um, yeah uh boy, oh boy, this is a film that is uh, not easily forgotten um it's it 's just full of fascinating imagery um and just it is a hard movie to talk about because you can start to analyze it, but you feel like you're not scratching the surface. Um, you can talk about the individual aspects of it, but you feel like, no, 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 that, that, that cheapens it somehow. Uh, you need to talk about the whole thing. But then once you start to do that, you realize, Oh no, this is too big for me. Um, but I, so I'm not even sure where to start, I guess, just to maybe talk about the emotional um, impact it had on me. Um, it is it just draws you in. It almost feels like um like a, like a snake charmer, you know, uh, that you see in a movie where, you know, the ki- the uh, king cobra like comes out of the basket and like stares you in the eye and you just find yourself drawn towards it. Like you're hypnotized, being drawn into this thing that is that is dangerous and and you can't understand exactly what's happening like it's a film that just is very hypnotic uh and i think frankly the the music uh plays a big part in that um it is sometimes atonal but there's definitely a theme that would that comes be in. the
1: bp nominated score that's the one okay.
0: yes um <laughs> well done um i gotta start plugging these better um <laughs> but uh Yeah. And it just, and so the music pulls you in the visual style and feeling like you're being transported to a place you've never been. Um, and sometimes it's just, oh, it's a completely black screen except for the person who is walking on a floor you can't see. Uh, but they're, they're not in shadow. They're perfectly exposed. Uh, in every sense of the word because they're often naked um but there's like a light shining on them but there's you don't see evidence of light anywhere else so you will sometimes see a perfectly a completely white screen a completely black screen and then suddenly you see somebody floating in blackness as though they're in tar but you can still see them completely so this i mean this is some of the this is some of the imagery i'm talking about um and then underneath is this you can talk about it any number of ways thematically, but to me, the thing that was that it, in which it was most effective is just the idea, the way that because it's what I what I feel like it, what I think is an alien. I think that's what people uh, assume. Uh, it's an alien who, uh, played by Scarlett Johansson, who seduces men uh, into following her home, and then once there, she traps them and uh and then r- pulls their skin off <laughs> and and then uh and you don't completely know what they do with they're not using the skin they're using everything underneath and you're not sure exactly what they're doing with it if the aliens are using that to keep themselves going if they're using it as food or sustenance or whatever um but uh so that's the idea but she just seems to be consistently interested in what makes a person a person the way she looks at her own human form the way she talks to men the way she looks at the world around her and it's a film and as a result the film seems to be looking at what makes people people and the idea of of just sort of that dog eat dog kind of thing the idea of preying upon other people the idea of the only way for me to exist is for me to is to consume you in a way and there comes a moment towards the end of the film, and anytime she's starting to lure a man into her trap, that's when this music comes in. And then towards the end, the tables have turned a little bit, uh, but not at all in this, not, not in that way at all. Uh, and I remember just thinking, like, oh my gosh, this is really interesting. And I had this moment, like, I wonder if the music's going to come in, and there it is. <laughs> and I think, okay that is uh that's the kind of symmetry i like um <laughs> and i just think like okay so now by bringing the music in here you're tying these two things together and now it is about uh trying to sympathize with the other person the person that you used to view as either an obstacle or a way of getting what you want and now the tables have turned and now we see it from the victim's point of view and we don't like what we see and it's just there's so much going and I feel like even talking about that is not even scratching the surface it is such a marvelous hypnotic film this is one of those movies that we talk about from time to time where you're not sure what if the filmmaker even knows what they're trying to do that just there's this thing that they need to, this story or these visuals that they need to get out and this is one of those films to me I gotta and see it's, this thing. it's marvelous
1: okay here comes number 8. We haven't been saying the numbers, have we? Uh, Got to do that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, number, so number eight, 8 for me. Uh time to talk about abortion. Okay. It's Jillian Robespierre's obvious child. Okay. Now did you see it? I did not.
0: Okay. It was he, uh, okay. the other day it was between that or Joe and I picked Joe. Okay.
1: Um well yeah, you should see Obvious Child. It's uh, I like Jenny Slate a lot. And she's great. She's uh in full Jenny Slateness on display um well my association with her is from
0: parks and recreation oh okay in which case i hope it's not that because i feel like the film would have a very specific tone that it sounds like it does not have
1: yeah i just mean she's very funny no. um but it's i mean i said we were going to talk about abortion and it's hard not to talk about this film from a social or political or socio-political i want to get pretentious about it um and i do that's the name of the show um point of view uh but uh first and foremost i just want to talk about that it it's a great it's a great human comedy the kind that we don't see enough anymore you know and and this is the second one on my list after life partners that's just a really funny movie about people actually behaving the way that people behave Mm -hmm. i feel like now just like with a lot of other mainstream movies they're they commit to one genre and go all in on that, mm-hmm. you know. And there's so little room for just human stories, um, in in our in our big budget major studio releases. This is the kind of thing we should be seeing more of. And that it's very very funny, but it's not like, you know, an Adam McKay film. And there's not room for those. I like right. those, but people aren't acting like crazy versions of themselves. not 21 or or 22 Jump Street. just neither one of those. Yeah. Um, it exists in a believable. New York City and um I think that's one of the reasons that I liked Enough Said so much last year. Yeah. It's just it's a movie
0: it's a genuinely funny comedy for grown ups. Yeah. And that takes place completely in our reality. Yeah. But it is unabashedly a comedy.
1: Yeah. And that's what this is. I don't know if it's as much for grown ups because I guess grown ups a lot of them went through a period of being, you know, broke urbanites probably you and i did yeah, yeah. certainly
0: um so one that c- one could make the argument we still are that's not true <laughs> that's not true
1: um so that that part of it definitely uh uh was was familiar to me but uh beyond that i guess in addition to just but that, that's what, but still i want to make sure I'm going to be clear. That's what it is, first and foremost, mm-hmm. a very funny human story about a real person going through something that a lot of people have gone through. Right. And now that's how we get into the political stuff, which is the movie's point. The movie is about a woman having an abortion, and it's mm-hmm. not about the hemming and hawing over whether or not she's going to have an abortion. It's about her having an abortion, deciding very early in the movie to have an abortion, and what what it is to go through with that. And the point the movie makes. Um, in, in one of the rare instances where it does get overtly, you know, overtly, uh, um, what's what I'm looking for? I, what is, with my vocabulary today? Uh, well, it is getting, it's pretty late. Yeah. um, yeah. Once it does get above the surface with its points, it does, it does, uh, point out that, um, statistically a lot more women have had abortions than you probably realize, mm-hmm. We probably all know people who have had abortions, and we don't know it. Um, and it's um, a secret because it's such a politicized issue in many ways. Um, and so I think the 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 purpose of this movie um, is to sort of normalize that, to say – I mean it doesn't ask you to – because it's not constantly going around shouting about – the pro-choice movement or anything like that uh it's asking you to engage with jenny slate's character as a as a human being um and i think that's that's very important um and it's not just about the fact that it's about abortion it's also uh a complicated female lead mm-hmm. you know that we, we don't see enough you know there's did she did jenny slate write it uh, no, I think Gillian Robespierre oh, okay. All uh, right. wrote and directed it. For some
0: reason, it, in any review that I've read, um, people play up Jenny Slate so much that for some reason I thought she was a creative force behind it. Yeah, but of course, I mean, uh, you can perform in something and be the, a creative force behind yeah.
1: it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, interrupt. No, I'm 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 done. But I will also point out real quickly that um, Gabe Liebman is hilarious. Okay. Uh, he's a comedian. He's a stand-up comic. I don't know if you know him. He does a lot of stuff on the Nick Kroll or the Kroll show. Oh, I don't think I... Yeah, I don't have... I, I have never seen it. Um, well, he yeah, he plays... Um, Jenny Slate plays a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. And he plays one of her stand-up comedian friends. And he's okay. hilarious. Gabby Hoffman is hilarious. That is a okay. great cast. Yeah. All right, what's number
0: eight for you? Uh, I know you've seen this one. This is, How exciting. Finally. Uh, number eight for me is Adam Wingard's The Guest. Okay, here we go. All right, I know you saw it because we saw the same uh, screening.
1: Yeah, and I also mentioned on this very episode. Indeed, first. there's a lot of reasons I know you've seen. It. <laughs>
2: um,
0: yeah, so uh, you know, looking at my looking at my uh, top ten, there's actually quite a few genre movies on here. I guess that maybe there is every year. I don't know. I can't. I can't immediately recall my other uh, tops ten. Um, <laughs> it's a joke I make every year, and I love it. Um, but uh, yeah, the guest is a really wonderful film, and I agree with you completely. It's a, it is a throwback very much to uh, the '80s. And if you need any indication of that, just listen to the music. Um, and it, you know, it feels like the hitcher or, you know the stepfather or any of those types of things where there's an enemy in, in your midst, uh, and you may not know it, a uh, hand that rocks the cradle, that sort of thing. Um, and it has a lot of fun with that. It has a lot of fun with the idea that, uh, Dan Stevens, who does a really wonderful job, uh, is so perfect. Is the, an angel come to earth, you know, (laughs) that is who this man is. And just, and after a while, it becomes, he is so great at everything. It becomes absurd and you laugh, but then you realize, Oh, he is great at everything, especially killing. Um, (laughs) and uh and that is also kind of funny at times but they also do such a great job of setting up uh the other characters and the family that he is infiltrated that uh that when certain characters are killed there is no humor there is betrayal and mm-hmm. sadness and it is amazing to me that they are that uh that uh Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett yep uh, this, the screenwriter that they are able to juggle those tones because I mean, I feel like most of the time when you 're doing an uh, a genre exercise, which is very much what this feels back, I feel like that 's all it 's ever going to be and exactly yeah you 're not going to be able to delve any any deeper we 're not going to be able to take these characters seriously as characters
1: and yeah and that's i mean that 's what they did with here next as well is take an idea that seems it 's not not high concept but it seems like a movie based on one concept. To begin with. Yeah. And they fully commit to that. Yeah. But they also make sure, okay, now that we have that in place, who are these people? Yeah. And, um, yeah. And that's what brings their movies from just being good entertainment to being great movies. This is two great movies in a row for them. Yeah.
0: And, and I really don't know. I mean, there is, you know, as much as we, I mean, I, I realize I just spoke in very vague, strange terms about under the skin, but as much as, as I feel like you and I, between the two of us, can probably get to the heart of certain films and how, and the, the choices that a filmmaker uh, makes in order to achieve a certain effect. As much as I feel like you and I are able to do that, every once in a while there is a certain je ne sais quoi in which I feel like, how do you do that? I can follow plot point by plot point. I can look at camera angles. I can look at editing choices, musical choices, uh, character choices... And I still can't quite pinpoint exactly how, like I said, how they are able to have this be a fully fledged, self-aware mm-hmm. uh, exploration and celebration of a pulpy genre, and still have me feel uh, like I know these people that they actually exist, and that I am that I mourn when something bad happens to them. Um, I don't know how they do it, but do also you have even any
1: theories. I don't, but uh, also even juggling like transitioning from different types of homages, you know, yeah. like so much of it, so much of this movie is John Carpenter. It feels like John Carpenter. It looks mm-hmm. like John Carpenter. That sort of synthy score is yes. John Carpenter, but eventually it becomes like militaristic in a James Cameron way. Yeah. And it gets there completely honestly.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of Terminator um, in there as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, and, um, uh, I find that really fascinating that they that they can do that in a way that isn't just like like they had a checklist of references and they're hitting them from one scene to another. They're actually – they're earning everything they do. Yeah.
0: It's, it's very organic. At no point do you feel like, OK, now we're referencing a different film. It <laughs> right. just happens and right. you're there. And I think a lot of that actually is due to um, a very good consistent performance by Dan Stevens. He can be sort of the anchor and as yeah. long as we believe what he's doing, then suddenly we find, oh, he's – transitioned from this type of character to this one and we didn't even notice
1: but the rest of the cast is great too micah monroe is the i don't know if i'm saying her first name right yeah i don't i don't know um and then the the parents are leland orser and sheila kelly is that her name i i don't know Um, you've seen her a million times
0: before and i always like her yeah she's in
1: singles she was on lost for a bit yeah um she was on gossip girl for a bit um And then Joel David Moore, Ethan Embry. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, really good cast. Everyone's good. Yeah, Lance Reddick. Lance Reddick. Our friend, A.J. Bowen. Oh, wait, you weren't on that episode. No, he's no friend of mine. Friend of the show. There you go. And my dear friend, A.J. Bowen. Um, All right, should we move on? Sure. My number seven. All right. David Wayne's They Came Together. All right. Did you see this one? I did. Um, What I love about it is that it sort of rescues the genre of the spoof. Okay. Um, we talked on the movie journal this week about uh, the Seltzer and Friedberg uh, atrocities. Um, Did we? Maybe no, that I, was off mic. No, I think
0: that was this episode. Oh, was it? Yeah. Cause right. I think I talked about saving Christmas. Oh, okay. And we
1: talked earlier today earlier. Yeah. Well, whatever. Um, <laughs> this is not just a collection of the type of scenes you see in romantic comedy. It's a spoof of romantic comedy that has a great, um, affection for the genre. Mm-hmm. And it, it's full of jokes that are both about romantic comedies and they're just absurdist, crazy, hilarious jokes yeah. on their own. But also it mimics the style and the structure. Um, I mean, f- the form of romantic comedies, it, it, it not only, I mean, it tells jokes with the camera and with the editing, Um, including what I think is the greatest joke, uh, of any movie this year. Oh my. Um, which is, um, it's a play on the, the lazy filmmaking technique of. Um, ADR exposition where you see like a car driving down the road and you hear people talking. Oh, yes. As yes. if like they're supposed to be in the car talking. And yes. It's like, oh, I'm really glad you came, decided to spend Thanksgiving with my family or whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. And there's, I won't spoil it, but there's a twist on that that is like, it both made me laugh out loud and just like have my jaw open. Of, like, I can't believe how brilliant and spot on that joke is. And it might be a little esoteric for people who just watch a lot of movies. Um, to To understand why that's so funny, but the movie is full of that that sort of thing it's It's so thoroughly conceived it's it's as ambitious and meticulous a work of art as anything else we're going to talk about in this top ten uh, and it doesn't you know th- this sort of thing doesn't get the respect that it deserves um, but this kind of just ferociously committed comedy. Deserves recognition,
0: yeah. And uh, you know, it's interesting. I didn't actually love it as much as you did. I remember having a problem with it for the life of me. I do not remember what it was. Well, there you go. Uh, when I think back, I think of the stuff I like. And you're absolutely right. It, it with spoof, it is so easy, and parody. It's so easy to just take the broadest possible strokes mm-hmm. and just do that. And it can be good. It can be funny. It'll be. It could be very effective, but not unlike, say. Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles, but I, I'll stick with Young Frankenstein because that even more just the way that it is shot yeah. is like is really engaging in the genre. But you're absolutely right. Stuff like stuff like the the external uh, narr- voiceover exposition at the beginning of a scene, often in a car, that is it's a cliche. But it's such a shorthand, it doesn't even register as, a, as an artistic choice that a, that a filmmaker makes. But it is complete – when you mention it, people would think, yeah, I guess that does show up a lot. It kicks yeah. off a scene. It's like and, – and it's usually saying someone saying, I can't believe you did this mm-hmm. or whatever. And just – and the fact that they – that David Wayne was so attuned to that – yeah. That he's parodying things that no one would it wouldn't even occur to people to parody.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's just he it's he makes a lot of really
0: really great choices.
1: Yeah. I also love the way that it shows the passage of time whenever there's a holiday. Yeah. And it cuts to a party scene and you hear people literally saying, "It's Halloween. It's Halloween."
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is it is definitely a movie worth seeing.
1: All right. Uh number
0: number 7, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um my number seven is Dan Gilroy's
1: Nightcrawler. We'll talk about it later. All right. All right. So I guess I'm up again. Then it's time for my number six, um, which we may talk about later. It's Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice. We are not talking about that. That's not even in your top 15? Well, I think you have to answer for that first then. All right. Uh,
0: I thought the film was a mess, but not in the way I like. <laughs> uh, there's plenty of messy <laughs> movies that I love. Um, uh, it, it was, uh, it's weird because uh, how, how, how am I going to prove a negative? Um, <laughs> just that it wasn't as first from a, okay, we'll start first with comedy. I did not find it that funny. I did not find Joaquin Phoenix's character remarkably, um, consistent and I'm fine with characters being inconsistent, especially a character like that. He probably would be a little bit. But the film seems to, depending on whether it wants to be a joke or a drama in any given scene, it seems to, it seems to, his level of intelligence seems to vary and you could put that down to, I, I really don't want to spend time like bashing a movie that you're about because I we've don't, because I don't hate it. so much
1: it. about how much we, I, I like this movie.
0: Okay. I, just, <laughs> I don't I, know that much. Because I st- there's still a lot of stuff I like about it you know um i guess what i could the probably the best way to sum it up is it is it is not it is certainly not more than the sum of its parts if i'm feeling generous i would say it's equal to the sum of its parts but i think it is probably less than you take any one character or any one scene and i might actually like it a lot um i might like that part but when you put it all together it it's you know a series of vignettes that theoretically go together and again it's, it's a noir type thing I don't care about the story the story doesn't have to make sense to me I don't require that um, but I do require um, characters that I maybe not even care about that doesn't even that's not even that important to me but characters that I that I get and that I'm at least invested in and I'm invested Catherine Waterston absolutely uh, Josh Brolin absolutely Walking um, Phoenix, not so much. He seems to be more of an observer than anything else, which is fine. Um, I got no sense of anybody else, even though I think Benicio del Toro is
1: doing good work, and I love Martin, uh, Martin Short, BP nominated. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely don't take issue with the idea that he's just an observer, because he's, I think, um, what's, what's so compelling to me about Inherent Vice is that it seems... And everything about its presentation and its length, it mm-hmm. seems like a big idea movie. It's a period piece. It has yeah. Robert Ellswood's beautiful photography, you know, um, and uh, I mean, and Paul Thomas Anderson is a uh, a Kubrick acolyte and, yeah. and, and tends to frame things in ways that uh, have have a, a, a grandeur to them, even when they're domestic or banal um, on the surface. But this... The story or the scope of the story and of the character keeps getting pared down and not in, like, an efficient way. Mm -hmm. The reason it seems, like, all over the place and, like, it's vignettes is because I think it's this character who represents the, you know, hippies post the 60s. Right. Is looking for something to believe in anymore. When it was the 60s, they all had big ideas to latch on to. And now those have been co-opted and they st- he still wants to believe he's part of a some sort of counterculture or outside uh the mainstream but he doesn't know what that means anymore and so the reason it sort of casts about is because he's trying to find out what he actually represents and that's why it gets the you know the most emotionally powerful scene in the movie um is just him giving someone a ride home and then waiting outside as that person goes in and goes into his home and says hi to his wife uh because it's like okay all these big ideas don't mean anything anymore they're being used to sell things or to sell houses or you know they're being co-opted uh but this this human connection finally is something to invest in yeah i was
0: talking with uh scott about this and he he loved the film and he's seen it. I think like four times or something mm-hmm. like that. So part of me is almost willing to defer to him because he's just seen it so much. But, um, but yeah, and, and actually that, as he and I talked through it, I realized like, yeah, that is, like when you think about it, like really trying to focus in on the time period, I think helped me a lot. Um, the idea of, you know, when it does take place. So we've got, you know, Vietnam, numerous assassinations, idealism just being basically destroyed Uh Um, and yet he continues. And it reminds me a lot of one of my favorite little bits of, uh, writing from fear and loathing in Las Vegas, where he's talking about the the crest of the wave and stuff like that, which I love. It's, uh, yeah, it's the highlight of that book and the the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And it's beautifully written. Uh, What I've read of Hunter S. Thompson, like he he has such an interesting style, but very seldom does he achieve, I think, beauty in how he writes, but that is beautiful. And this... This film and especially the character of Doc does feel like that—a guy who but, is just like, okay, what do I do now? Right. That, and that, that's the like difference that. between
1: him and Raul Duke or or Hunter S. Thompson is that yeah. um, Doc is not resigned. He's not wistful. He's not looking back on the past. He's still trying to find something that makes him kind of a scrappy underdog type type of character and it makes him kind of pitiable in ways. Yeah. Um, because you talked about these ideals, these ideals being. Uh, destroyed, but it's not be- because they were defeated in combat. Right. The ideals dissipated because I'll use the word for the third time. They were co-opted, yeah. and that's uh, that's what happens. It, you know, it turns from a movement into a commercial, yeah. and then what do you believe in anymore? And I think um,
0: I think it kind of. You know, as we talk about this and and this idea that I'm – the thing I'm about to say, which you've already said, but the way – the terms in which I'm going to put it um, is helpful for me as I talk about the film thematically, which is I think when you're young, um, which seems to be a thing that we are returning to in this episode, or at least I am.
2: In recent um, episodes.
0: Yeah. Like when you're younger, you have a very specific idea of something needs to be done, and I will – I will put forth a lot of effort so that something is done on a large scale. And then you come to realize that, yes, certainly, as we talk about movies, as we move on in the episode, w- one person can make a difference. But, uh, prob- but I'd say not always. And that's <laughs> probably pretty rare. And also – and as we talk about with – as I talked about with Night Moves, it's someone might make a difference, but they don't exactly know how. And maybe the difference they made was not always great. Um, and so – you know, you what you're talking about, the idea of, of him having these big ideas or he used to have these big ideas and then realizing, okay, there's not much I can do in these large – what can one person do against these large issues? But you know what? I can do something for this one guy and his family. And the idea of sort of taking sort of personal responsibility and feeling like, okay, I might not be able to change every – it's this starfish thing. I'm sure you've heard it before. The idea that uh, – it was. It's after a storm, and there's a bunch of starfish washed up on a beach, and uh, a guy's walking along and just and sees a little boy throwing starfish back into the water, mm-hmm. and it's there's hundreds of these things, and the guy walks up and kind of scoffs at the kid and says, "Look at all these starfish, and you're just one kid. Do you really think you're going to make a difference?" And then the kid stands up, uh, l- bends down, picks up the starfish. And throws it throws it into the water and says, "I made a difference
1: to that one." Mm-hmm. And it's like it's sort of that idea. Well, it's like Cloud Atlas when uh, the racist slave trading dad tells him, <laughs> he tells him, uh, uh, "All your idealism is worth nothing more than a drop in the ocean." And he says, "What is the ocean but a multitude of drops?" Yeah, I mean that's it's
0: it's one it, that's that's one way of looking at it. And so I that and that's the thing is maybe that is why. The most satisfying thing to me is when he actually does have a clear uh, idea of what he wants to do, which is dealing with ocean. Will- uh, ocean, sorry, Owen Wilson's character. Yeah. Um,
1: and so, in your opinion, who's great? By the way, I've heard. So- I've read. I read someone say that Owen Wilson was like the weak link in the movie. I yeah, disagree. I disagree. He's fantastic. I disagree completely. I thought yeah. he was
0: great. Yeah, I read that too. I think. It was, I think it might have been the AV Club that said that. Okay. Um. And yeah, so in your opinion, does that story take on more weight precisely because we're veering from one thing to another, or do um, you think it could have maybe trimmed some? I, I don't like to put it in these terms. Could it have trimmed some of the fat and still had that? I wouldn't that want a
1: second trim from this movie, personally. Okay. Um, but I don't think your the starfish thing or the cloud atlas thing. I think is uh, you know it's worth seeing the movie in that light, but I don't think it actually applies. I don't think, um, I don't think doc ends up settling on focusing on, on Wilson's character as a way of like, um, this is a piece in the puzzle. I'm helping this person as a way of, you know, a stepping stone toward helping all of humanity. I think he does it for himself. Yeah. Um, and I think that's kind of where he, where he comes to by the end. I think the movie as, as big and, and, um, ideological as it can be, it ultimately, ultimately ends up at a place of psychology, mm. um, that, um, Doc is like working through some stuff and realizing things about himself. Um, I'm glad I saw it more than once because the, um, the Catherine Watterson's monologue and the subsequent sexual encounter, Yeah, I really, the first time I saw it, I was like, I don't get that. I don't get yeah. what it is. The second time I saw it, I... I got it a lot more, um, which is the idea of, um, these things that have been done to Catherine Watterson's character, um, the way that she's been used, um, literally used sexually by, mm-hmm. um, by Mickey Wolf Wolfman, um, are, I'm going to keep using this word, are a metaphor for the way that hippie ideals have been co-opted. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that Doc, despite all his idealism, turns into this animal at the end, he's turned on by this story and he acts on his animal impulses. He has to come to terms with the fact that like, yeah, I'm susceptible to all this shit too. I'm not above, I'm not above what's happening to the world. I'm a part of it. Maybe I should just do something that helps me feel like a better person. Mm-hmm. Whereas, um, Bigfoot Bjornson is that his name? Yeah. Yeah. Um, can't like he, clearly has psychological issues one point like it's even like he's in therapy his his wife um talks about uh after a deductible that would choke a horse or something (laughs) like that um he's based on his action at the end where he returns to just the uh you know human rights violation you know kicking in the front door ways he's not dealing with his shit yeah um and so uh again this is all to say that i i don't think of this movie is coming to some grand statement like cloud atlas does about mm-hmm. every little thing you do matters to everyone it's about what you do for yourself yeah. for the
0: record by the way I, i'm not I, I wasn't trying to say like with the starfish thing or whatever that doc does that because it's like well this is one little thing that is part of a bigger thing i don't think he's thinking in those terms i think he's just saying i don't think this is saying. this is what i'm being presented with And this is an actual thing I can do. Right. I don't think he's trying to like, I don't think it's any universal thing. It's just the only one he can actually do.
1: Um, And then the comedy, I'm surprised you didn't find it because I found it hilarious in some ways that are just like crazy and absurd. Yeah. And a lot of ways that have to do with what we're talking about. One of the biggest laughs of the movie comes in me. It comes late in the movie when he's meeting a. I don't know how much we can talk about spoilers he's i he, I,
0: I this is not a plot driven
1: film by any stretch of the yeah, imagination so he's so. he's meeting a rich lawyer type character at mm. a club it's near the very end of the movie yeah and he's told there's a dress code dress code wear a jacket and tie <laughs> and his version of jacket and tie is this like hippie corduroy jacket shirt and like a native american necklace yeah. thing that he wears and that's his like it's kind of petty but it's also kind of uh, rebellious. Yeah. You know, and it's, and it's sort of a metaphor for what we're talking about. It's like, this is what I can do. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I, we're not occupying, uh, you know, buildings anymore. We're not, you know, staging marches and sit-ins and all that stuff. Uh, I'm just going to wear this dumb outfit <laughs> to this rich guy's club. And that's my way of, that's how I can rebel today. And that seems great by the way. Well, yeah. Cause you got Martin Donovan, can't, one of the, one of the greatest. Wrong. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I thought it was fantastic. And, and you, you know what? I'll you say, this. hated
0: it. I hated it more than you know. That's it goes saving Christmas, <laughs> magician, God's not dead, and inherent fucking vice. Yeah. Now it's uh, and you know what? I'll say this. Everybody like it or dislike it. Everybody I know, including me, the minute they saw it, said, "I guess I got to see it again." <laughs> yeah. That's uh, true. And the fact that you saw it twice and I only saw it once might actually explain some things, um, as far as uh, our dis- difference of opinion. Uh but now we'll get to a film that I like and you do not. Oh. Um which is so we're at number 6, right? Yep. Okay, number 6. Uh Alejandro Iñárritu's Birdman.
1: Now see, I didn't this is one of those things where I hate this
0: movie more yeah. than anything else.
1: Now, I I mean I have uh, a lot of respect for the movie, mm-hmm. but um yeah, I was ultimately turned off by how exhausting it was in a way that felt needless and uh attention grabby and I
0: definitely see what you mean. And I'm not sure if I disagree <laughs> because there is no reason for it to be made the way that it is. So then my question is like, there's no obvious reason. So then the question is why, mm-hmm. if if he felt that this was, if he felt this was necessary, then the question is why. And for me, uh, first off, I'll say the film resonated with me very, very much from a personal level because uh i'll go back to a story that i actually told on more than one lesson and i will do the very abridged version of it here um when holy motors came out a couple years ago um by the time i i was gonna see an early screening of it but i wound up turning left instead of right and i was late and classic so, tyler that's me all right <laughs> um and so uh and yeah, it literally came down to that. At, during at, at a time when there was a lot of traffic, I turned left instead of right, and added twenty minutes to my <laughs> uh, to my drive time. So I didn't go see it.
1: So Classic the, Los Angeles. That, that is true,
0: <laughs> um, but uh, but by the time I saw it, it was a film that was loved by critics. They absolutely loved it, and so by the time I finally got to see it. Holy I, Motors. Holy Motors, thank you. Sorry. Uh, we'll get to the movie we're talking about in a moment. Um, by the time I finally saw it, I had twisted myself up in knots because I knew that it had been, that it was kind of an experimental film. And I was, I literally had convinced myself that I could not have the right opinion because I had convinced myself that if I didn't like it, then it's because uh, I just love mainstream film and I can't think. Uh, abstractly and I'm a fucking moron. That was one side of it. If I did like it, then everyone would know that I like it just because everybody else does. And I'm a fraud. Uh, Those were my options. Um, And then when I saw the film and uh, really responded to it, and of course in that, the nature of that film is you will respond more to certain parts and, and less to others. But what, what they all add up to is something really amazing. And I actually like it a lot more in retrospect than I did at the time. But so I saw the film and I didn't flip over it. And so I'm like, okay, so we're landing on moron. Got it. Uh, and I freaked out so much that I went home and broke down crying in front of my wife. Uh, and she was like, what is, what movie did you just go see? And, (laughs) And you may recall that later on in that evening, uh, about one thirty a.m., I called you.
1: I, remember. I forgot about that. Yeah.
0: And I said, hey, here's what's going on. What do you have to say? Because uh, I, I wanted to talk to somebody who'd seen it. And you very wisely asked me, well, what did you think of the film? What did you like? What did you not like? And immediately I started feeling better because I stopped thinking about how I would be viewed. Uh-huh. And I started thinking about what a critic's supposed to think about, which is the movie itself. And I feel like that is how, so that idea, and anybody who does anything even mildly public or not, uh, that is, I think, a thing that they deal with, is how will I be viewed by this, uh, by people in, as a result of doing this thing? And so with Birdman, you have a character who did things one way his whole life and was viewed as less than. So it's like okay, well now I'll do this, and then I'll get the respect. And none of that is about the the thing he's doing. It's all about himself. And so, and you see just how unhappy he is how slavishly he, uh, I don't know how how slavishly he uh, responds to uh, the way people react to him, uh, positively or negatively. And so that's something that real and. The film is ultimately about him trying to free himself of that, although not really knowing uh, how to do so. So that's something that I really, really relate to. That's a very personal thing. Earlier in the episode, we were talking about the difference between favorite and best. Mm-hmm. Favorite comes into play when you ta- when I tell that story in regards to why I like the film. In regards to why I think Inuritu made the film the way he did, um, it is stressful. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And I think it has to do with the idea of this character as like a shark. He has to be constantly performing, constantly moving, or else he will die. Uh, He will cease to be if he's not always doing something, living for other people, whatever it is. And so we're always moving with him. Uh, There is no separation of days. It's just this continuous, stressful, exhausting existence as long as he is being driven by what he thinks people might think of him. And so uh that's a thing that I arrived at incidentally I saw the film twice and that's something I arrived at the second time.
1: It often helps. It it really does. Yeah. I mean I I've I've seen very few of the movies we're talking about more than once and it makes me wonder hey maybe I feel totally different than I think, differently than I think I do.
0: So I just talked a long time. I'm sorry. Uh, you've seen Birdman, yeah. And you talked a little bit about it at the at the top. I mean, did you have anything else you wanted to say about not,
1: it? Uh, not really. I don't need to go too much into it. There are a lot of things I like about it. I like the. I'm a sucker for magical realism, and it has. Absolutely. uh it, it has plenty of that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I think I I kind of feel like all the characters in the movie are kind of full of shit. And the movie recognizes that in a way that it doesn't really seem to have anything to say about it other than sort of a very superficial or maybe juvenile cynicism. And I think that turned me off as much as the um the presentation of it uh, exhausted me. And you know, I and I can argue Yeah. Um I feel like I I mean if this movie had come out when I was sort of new to seeing a lot of films it would have been my favorite movie of the year it's like so you know it's so technically adventurous and it's uh, and it's um such a it's, it's so prickly in a way that i, w- I think i would have responded to it as a as a younger person it's not even prickly it's almost anarchic and in, in its yeah um view of humanity uh i just think i'm not I'm not the person that I used to be um, and I um, don't respond as much to this kind of cynicism anymore. And you know, it's interesting. My
0: favorite movie of all time is Nashville, which is a film that you actually view, which you think views humanity very cynically. And I say there isn't a, a cynicism there, while also a deep hope that these characters will get better. Yeah. And where there's hope, I think there's... Uh, I don't think there's cynicism. There is like okay. that's the initial response, and and in watching the film a second time, I think with the Edward Norton character and definitely with the Michael Keaton character, there seems to be it's like if only these people would stop well, yeah, thinking I mean, these way, this way. We don't want to get too
1: much into spoilers, yeah, yeah. but there's definitely hope in Birdman, I would yeah, definitely yeah. say. I mean, the way it ends is definitely yeah. hopeful. Um, Moving on, or I guess it could be seen a different way. It could. It could be. It could be seen as him sort of abandoning hope and committing to his psychosis yes um but i would rather see it as hopeful all right number five for me i don't know if this is going to come up later it's richard Linklater's boyhood it will not come up at all at all i guess i knew that actually that you didn't like it as much yeah um so here we go now we got to talk about boyhood again we're the 10 millionth podcast (laughs) let's talk about boyhood let's talk (laughs) about how great it is didn't we just talk about it um no we didn't What do you mean? Because we don't want to spoil
0: how we might have talked about it.
1: Oh. um, Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I don't know what I was thinking about. Uh, We obviously didn't talk about boyhood at all. Um, I guess a few weeks ago, we did talk about it in the movie, journal.
0: That must be be what you were thinking about. about. (laughs) (laughs) What character are we doing that we both dropped
1: our voice? I have no idea. (laughs) Um, Okay, so now it's up to me to talk about uh, boyhood again. It, <laughs> um, which is I uh, I guess um th- we're coming on a theme coming up on a theme here and maybe this is because of the year in movies maybe it's just because where my where my head's at tonight while we're recording this. Um but the 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 mixture of a sort of small a limited approach and big ideas in boyhood is this you know it's a it's a domestic f- film that uh, i don't mean just that it's american made i mean it's about uh, a family um and it's recognizable to uh i'd say almost almost any american or maybe i don't know people in the uh, the whole world probably yeah. um, w- would recognize this it has what i'm saying is it has a mass appeal but not not in the lowest common denominator denominator not in the lowest common denominator way but in a um just universal slice of life type of way i guess that's the the little phrase i'm going for here is it's a slice of life movie that happens to be a grand 3 hour long statement movie as well mm-hmm. um and uh it 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 the thing it sets out to do is so quixotic to me. And the fact that it achieves it yeah. is uh, a minor miracle, uh, I would think, you know, to say, okay, this movie is going to capture what it is to grow up in America. Yeah. This is going to be the definitive coming of age film. That seems impossible. And yet by dodging all the traps or all the temptations to focus on big moments or um you know what we think of as universal experiences uh milestones Mm -hmm. um it actually does feel more realistic because um i think i might have said this a few weeks ago um but yeah so we might all undergo certain milestones the Mm -hmm. idea of you know you know birthdays and driver's licenses and high school graduation and these sort of things. Yeah, these are universal. But we spend far more of our time not doing those things than doing them. We, you know, um, there's a simplicity or a temptation to uh, measure our our lives in such milestones. But really, most of our time is spent otherwise. Mm -hmm. And by having this movie that's three hours long and spends most of its time on just normal interactions. I mean, there are definitely some big... Big right. moments that the kind of things you would remember from your childhood, you know, fleeing a, an abusive stepfather, that sort of thing is like, that's a big,
0: yeah.
1: a big moment. But so much of it is also just being in a car or, you know, going to a baseball game or having a conversation, you know, these sort of small things, which is how we spend most of our time. Uh, it, I guess, is it, it finds grandeur in the banal. That's what I'm going to say.
0: Yeah, I th- I think so. And, you know, and that's, you know, it's not in my top 15. I think it's probably in my top 20. Uh, I don't know exactly. But um, yeah, it's a film that I didn't actually find from a character standpoint, didn't find that dynamic, except with the parents, of course. Um, but, uh, and that's, and that's okay. It is a film that, you know, I-, I wonder if, if we were to do this episode in two weeks, would it, because I was, I've been rearranging my top 20 pretty consistently yeah and if we were to do this episode in two weeks would it wind up in my top 15 uh maybe honestly um because the more i think about it you know I, i think about um when i think back on my life i will think of certain events that shaped who i am i will think of certain relationships that shaped who i am and i will also think of certain routines that shaped who i am you know i can talk about yes i will talk about uh you know the day that my parents told me we were moving uh and i had to leave all my friends but i will also think about coming home and watching uh the disney afternoon i will think about uh how excited i was that x men was going to be a cartoon on saturday mornings like that is that is obviously I'm able to say that was not as important as, you know, the death of a loved one or something like that. But it's still a big part of me. It's a thing I still remember. There's a lot of stuff I don't. But uh, but yeah, and so it does feel very much like, you know, Mason's memories. And looking at it from that standpoint, I actually do like it quite a bit. And it would also kind of explain why the character of Mason is, in my opinion, not remarkably dynamic is because he is sort of, I I talk frequently about our entry point into a movie. He's kind of our entry point. Like when you think of your life, it sounds strange. If you're watching the movie of your life in your head, you're not thinking about you. You're thinking about all these other characters, right? You know what I mean? And I feel like that's kind of, and that thinking of it that way, which I only started to maybe a few days ago, uh, has helped me tremendously. Yeah.
1: He is, he's passive, reactive at best. Yeah. The uh, way any of us would be in our memories. Yeah.
0: Right now we're all being very active, but when we look back, we'll think of other people's reactions to what we did. And so it's it's very uh it it's interesting and I'll say this like I don't love the movie, but it is an achievement for a num- for Richard Linklater for I don't remember the name of the editor, but it's uh, i do love the way it's edited and i think the performances specifically on the part of patricia arquette and ethan Hawke, are great so yeah it's it's a very very good movie and one that that i think deserves a good number of the accolades that it's getting number five for you number five for me is steve james life itself oh okay which is a film that i love again for a lot of uh, personal reasons um I loved Roger Ebert. I actually was lucky enough to meet him uh, for about three minutes uh, on a street in Chicago, and he was a perfect gentleman, um, you know, treating me like a lady. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but what's more is, what I like about it is that it doesn't reduce him to, Well, he was a film critic for a while, it, it really does look at his whole life uh, and it under but it also understandably gives weight to the parts that shaped him. You know, one of the things that I love about the film is that there's a little mini biography of Gene Siskel in there. Yeah. As there should be. There would be no, I mean, there would not be Roger Ebert the way we know him if it weren't for Gene Siskel. Right. In the same way, I mean, quite frankly, years from now, if somebody makes a movie of my life, there's going to have to be a little mini biography of David Bax in there. It's
1: probably going to happen the other way, though. Fri me the other way around,
0: because I'll probably die too early <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and so uh so it's and that's the thing I feel like uh Steve James is such an intuitively good filmmaker that I think he knows how best to express somebody's life, and I do like the amount of access the, that he had and how 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 i don't know just how sparingly he uses. Kind of the for lack of a better term shock footage of Ebert not being able to talk getting like mucus suctioned out of his neck and just and just like the the obvious pain that he's in yeah. and discomfort I mean that's tough that is tough to see, but it doesn't revel in that and say, Oh this poor man it is yeah at least any no more than than it should because it is an unfortunate thing, and you see a uh, you see in Roger Ebert a man who 's just constantly thinking about communication and expression, and can you think of anything worse than not being able to express yourself the way you always have? you know he could still write, and that 's wonderful, and he developed a blog and he put a lot of his personal thoughts out there um, and thankfully he didn 't lose his ability to see or hear so that he could still engage in film. But he wasn't able to he wasn't able to speak, and you come to realize that he's more than just that thing he's more than just the ability to talk he can communicate in other ways and i don't know it just there's a lot going on in in that film, and you know it it affects me it affected me personally for a number of reasons i like, as I said in the movie journal a while ago again yes it does there's those things do kind yeah. of rob us the uh, of the impact. Uh, but after I saw the film, I wept for like five minutes because I was thinking of a lot of things. I was thinking of, you know, uh, the relationship I had with Roger Ebert, which was he was a mentor to me. I didn't know him. I mean, we, ca- we be- became kind of best friends during those three minutes. Um, <laughs> but I didn't know him. But he was still a mentor to me. Uh, and it's the sadness of as I get older, feeling like I'm kind of on my own. And that's and that's a sad thing, but it's also a necessary thing. And honestly, the film is called Life Itself, named after his autobiography, of course. But it's called Life Itself. And part of what life is, because it gets you thinking about all kinds of things. And part of what life is, is passage of time. And I'm a grown up now. I'm not reliant on my parents or even authority figures anymore. You know, I'm above the law yeah exactly you (laughs) saw the rover
1: (laughs) exactly i'm like guy pierce uh yeah i didn't make my list but i i thought it was very good i liked how much it's uh um it's obviously about roger ebert but it's also about movies in a lot of ways yeah um i think you know life and movies were inextricable for for ebert Mm -hmm. uh, and they are for people like us and i wonder I mean, I know my my, uh, my mom and sister went and saw it on my recommendation. They liked it. They didn't love it. And I wonder if someone who doesn't love movies the way we do, if it's uh, a different experience.
0: Yeah, I'm sure if there was a movie made about, you know, uh, a notable football coach or something, it could mm-hmm. be a great movie. And I, but I feel like, and I might, and a great movie I think will probably be personally relatable to people. But there's a big difference between, oh, this figure shaped my life and philosophy and oh, I can understand why right. that person's important. Like, right. it's a big difference.
1: Okay, um, number four for me. in the home stretch. All right. Uh, and you haven't seen it. Um, you just it. told me beforehand. Uh, it's Ruben Ostlin's Force Majeure. Indeed. Um, which is uh, a... I feel like I'm using the same words over and over again, but it's a domestic drama. It's about a couple questioning their a married couple questioning their relationship um and that seems very simple in description but if you're in the middle of that it doesn't seem simple at all that's uh, potentially like a life-defining thing and the movie treats it as such um with um you know big emotional scenes with musical cues and monologues and those sort of things but also tiny moments that are so specific that you have to—I just have to be in awe of how Ruben Oslin got translated that sort of thing to film. Like, the way you feel when you and your wife are not agreeing on something, and you're just sort of—you're not actively in the fight at the moment, Yeah, but it's informing just the way that you— even not down to body language, you know, because this, yeah. this goes to the actor's performance too. It's just the way that it hangs over everything, um, he, R- Ruben Austin gets gets that so specifically that it was, uh, it's it, it, in ways difficult to watch. Like I, I, I thought this movie was fantastic. I won't revisit it easily. It'll be a while because yeah. it's, uh, it's so specific. But it's also very funny. Um, In many ways, Uh, I compare it to a movie from last year that got uh, I can't I think it was on my top 10 last year. Joe Swambrick's Drinking Buddies. Oh, okay, Yeah. Also a very funny, very human, very relatable film about emotional turmoils that are really specific and really hard to 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 grapple with, but are, you know, um, uh, relatable to us in a sort of um, ambiguous uh, or nebulous way that we can't put our finger on. That's why, that's why we have art to sort of, Mm -hmm. um, uh, to translate these things that we don't necessarily have words for. Um, so yeah, force majeure is, uh, beautiful and funny and, um, just, uh, incredibly insightful. Do you have any, uh, thoughts about the fact that it was,
0: a lot of people assumed it would be nominated for a best foreign film Oscar and it was not. I mean, at this point the documentary uh, right. wing or whatever and the and the foreign film voting body like they so seldom like uh, just subvert expectations and stuff that I think people have stopped trying to figure out how it works, but force majeure was something of a given uh, right do you think it has anything to do with the film itself that people were turned off by,
1: or i think um i i mean i hadn 't thought that much about it, but um I mean, I think we talk about the Academy in general likes movies to fit certain conventions and Force Majeure might have been just a little too, um, off, off kilter or a little too offbeat, off tempo, Mm -hmm. um, for what, whereas they nominated other stuff, um, that is, that is beautiful, but I think is a little more, um, what they're used to which is not yeah. to, to say that force majeure is some like gonzo movie it's right. not but it um it just has its little uh it's it's quirks you know um in I've, fact including like when the, one of the characters truly like breaks down it's a cathartic moment and mm-hmm. it's incredibly powerful but also the movie steps back far enough to let you Uh, recognize just how fucking ridiculous a person looks when they're crying. (laughs) Oh, my. Sort of like the host when Uh, that family's all crying together. Yes, it is actually kind of like that. Um, Okay, what's number four
0: for you? Number four for me is, oh, I forget, Laura Poitras. Poitras. Uh, Laura Poitras' Citizen Four, which is, this is a good year for documentaries. Uh, And Citizen Four, I think, is absolutely amazing for a lot of the reasons uh, for some of the reasons that I liked life itself which is uh, access I'm I'm astounded I'm astounded that we were able to see history as it was being made and I don't you know of course it's easy to say that because it's only been about a year but you know maybe in 10 years people won't remember who Edward Snowden is they will now Mm -hmm. because of this movie but at the same time but this is a big deal and certainly uh you know when you have a certain idea about maybe you know your government or the admi- or an administration or something like that you have a certain idea and then stuff comes out and you th- and it changes the way you think about the people in power and suddenly you think oh my gosh and this man almost single-handedly did that and this and this film caught all of it and caught the behind the scenes and you see that it's so easy for us to look at these figures and only see what we are presented with either by themselves or by others. And so it's interesting to see the way he conducts himself And you realize He's just, and I, I know it's easy to say he's just a regular guy, but he is just a regular guy. You know, he has, he makes jokes. He, you're seeing him grapple with becoming a footnote in history, a probably a pretty significant one as well. Um, and so I like that part of it but i also like just how much the film does not pull its punches and really commits to just one of the things that i love about oliver stone's jfk is just how much shit they throw at you uh-huh. it's just constant information and still winds up being invigorating there's so much about from from you know little things about how a fo- which you told me about uh, before i saw the film um how a phone can be used to listen in on your yeah. hotel room or something like that. Something is small. That's not needed. They don't need to include that, but it's a little bit, it's a little detail that lets you know, yeah, everything, this affects literally everything. And from that to the actual interview he does and the idea of his, his home being ransacked and that kind of thing. And his, his girlfriend being uh, hassled or something like that. Um, it just, I don't know. It, it's, its willingness to just show every part of this, no matter who it implicates, uh, I I respect it, and it's just it's it's angering, it's scary, it's entertaining, it's all of these things, and I just I loved it so much, and it was it was uh, was it in your honorable mentions? Yeah, or, okay,
1: um, and it uh, I like that it's because you mentioned all the information in it. Which is important. But it's not like an like like Inside Job, which is also a great movie. Mm-hmm. But that's very journalistic in the way that the information is sort of researched and organized and then presented almost like a, a paper that's been written. Yeah. This, because it takes as its uh its spine the story of a person, um is more organic, I I, I think, um, and it has more of a flow to the way that the information is um, it is presented that um, maybe doesn't maybe the individual points of information don't stick with you as much as they would in something like Inside Job, but it all the pieces of information come together to 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 provoke uh, a a a general emotional response mm-hmm. um, because it again because it has a. A human heart beating at its center.
0: Yeah. It would be easy for this thing to actually seem pretty cold or only, uh, only affect you on an intellectual level. But thankfully it's both, um, because you need to feel angry and understand what is being said.
1: All right. Number three for me. Um, and I'm, we're going to talk about it cause we didn't talk about it before. It's Dan Gilroy's nightcrawler. Okay. Um, and I, I like it <laughs> I feel like I'm running out of steam here. <laughs> We've still got a few more to go, but uh, yeah, I know we like the most important ones at the end, and I'm like, oh, that's could we just like power through these. <laughs> um no, that's not true uh it um it's it's like i guess a it's like an update or it's like a modern day take on german expressionism in a way in that um we're only really experiencing the world as as it exists for this character mm-hmm. which is not to say we're on his side right because we also see how crazy he is yeah but we don't get another point of view yeah you know um we have the empathy to see when Rene Rousseau acts as it reacts to him a certain way yeah. to empathize uh with her but it's it's his world mm-hmm. and um so much has been made of this movie being like an updated network or you know about uh sensationalized news and stuff like that I don't think that's really what it's about to me I think I think that's just a just a tool uh, for for other things it's the backdrop yeah I think uh, that this story unfolds in really it's about what you were talking about um, earlier with cheap thrills and like um i mean you you refer to it as movies of obama's administration but i just refer, think of it as or just a, the era you know yeah that time period um that uh one of the first maybe the first scene in the movie no not the first scene the first scene is when he steals the watch um but then he goes to sell stolen copper mm-hmm. and he positions himself he asks for a job from the guy that he's selling selling stolen goods to and he has this speech about um uh it encompasses many many things because when he talks even though when he when he monologizes is that a word um sure he it, it does it does often seem like he must have written that out beforehand. He's mm-hmm. like hitting this point, then all the little bullet points, and this point, and all the little bullet points. It's incredibly organized, but it covers a many uh, a great many things. But one of the things that he covers in that, in that in that monologue at the beginning is the idea that the workplace is no longer based on the idea that you go to work for a company and you work your way up and your loyalty is rewarded. That's not how the american business place works anymore and i think that scene being at the beginning is hugely informative to what happens over the rest of the movie yeah. that he he understands what the what the uh what what the workplace in america is like now he's perfectly suited to adapt to that yeah. and he becomes uh or maybe it already was 100 percent self-interested and motivated and ambitious uh in a way that is psychopathic or sociopathic um and yet like sociopathic is, is probably the way to go but is perfectly suited to moving up in the business world yeah uh that's what the movie is really about to me and um but apart from theme if we just want to talk about the execution of it there's not like this sounds like this sounds a little overly writerly but like the character himself there's not an ounce of fat on the movie. No. It's, um, it, it, it establishes a sort of a pace and it, um, commits that, you know what, it, you know what it's going to be. And then you just hurdle forward through this movie, picking up plot points and exposition and character development on the way, but it never slows down. It never explores a side alley. It, uh, it, it's, uh, an incredibly, uh, momentum focused, momentum based, uh, story.
0: Yeah, it's... Uh, as far as theme, I agree with you completely, and I do think that his ability to monologize, to use that word that you may or may not have made up, um, <laughs> his ability to do that, it almost it, it almost is what I was saying about JFK or Citizen 4, is that it's almost as though he realizes... Uh, it, the entire world is a job interview, and he always has to put his best foot forward, he always has to say what his... You know, what his best features are. And it's this idea of if I just keep talking with confidence and sound like I know what I'm doing, I'll get where I need to go. Yeah. And just so he just spews these monologues, but he spews them with a smile and with a lot of confidence. And he's just he's a he could be viewed as a go getter, Uh you know. Uh, But we're allowed to see him in other places. And we're allowed to see one moment when he – like one of the few moments where he fails and we're able to – and we're allowed to see how he feels about that, which is not good, by
2: yeah. the way. Yeah.
0: Um, and you're able to see that, oh, OK, so that's what's underneath the surface, surface at pretty much all times. So thematically, it's wonderful. Uh, and when you say we're not allowed to see any other perspectives, you're right. The closest we have to a, sp- to a perspective that we're on board with is his assistant. And that is, and what's more as, 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 sympathetic as that guy is, he's kind of a low life.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Who's made some obviously bad decisions may or may not be homeless, not to imply that homeless people are low lives, but he's made some bad decisions that have, have landed him where he is. And he's not the smartest guy. Like we don't, we sympathize him with him, but we're like, Oh, is this the guy closest to me? Cause I'm not super <laughs> on board with him. Uh, and so, and and I believe that the actor's name is Riz Ahmed, and I think mm-hmm. he does a, a really great job of not not trying to explain his character through how, through his performance. He just embodies a character who isn't remarkably bright and doesn't have a lot of skills. Um, I think the film is gorgeous. It's a really great L.A. movie. That's a thing we talk about from time to time. And yeah. as somebody who does drive around L.A. late at night, I look at it and I think, hey. Not since Collateral have I seen Los Angeles look like this, <laughs> um, and uh, and so I think it's really and what's more is how is it possible for a film to look as look naturalistic and expressionistic at the same time? I have no idea, but Robert Elswit, unsurprisingly, manages to do it. Um, it and then, exas. and then ultimately, I think Jake Gyllenhaal's performance is the scre- I think the screenplay and his performance. In, in which case, I think the two absolutely have to go hand-in-hand hand because I can't imagine – one thing that I that I talk about from time to time is the idea of you see a performance and you think, I can't imagine – or I can imagine somebody else doing that. I, I'm i sure there are other people that could probably play Lou Bloom. I, w- I wouldn't want to know him. <laughs> Exactly. They can, they can rot in hell for all yeah. I care. But it's just, But I can't imagine – The character having the power and being as funny and frightening as as he is. I mean, I I walked away from this thinking, oh, he could have been a good Joker, you know, Mm -hmm. or 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 some kind of supervillain like it's I'm so excited at this this new phase of Jake Gyllenhaal's career where he's, you know, becoming a character actor who who realizes like, yeah, I recognize I'm good looking. And even though he lost a lot of weight, like he's wearing very stylish sunglasses and he wears fairly stylish clothes. Like he's kind of a good looking character in that, but he manages to carry himself in a way and he did lose the weight so that he's just like, yeah, he could be good looking if he just wasn't him. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. It's, I I think it's a remarkable movie. And I listened back to your, the Oscar nominations episode with Scott and toe to toe. Toe-to-toe, and I could not disagree with him more. Scott, you and I have already talked about this, so hopefully I'm not telling tales out of school or anything. But, uh, but yeah, it's... in On a surface level, it is treading well... You know, it, it's treading well-trod territory, but I think thematically and just the specifics are where it really shines. Number three. Number three is... Shoot. Anton Corbin's couldn't remember the name of the director, Anton Corbin's a most
1: wanted man. Did you see it? I did see it. Did you like it? Uh, yeah. I thought it was fantastic.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah, I really, This was the first, probably the first movie of the year that I genuinely loved. Um, because it's, and, and I don't want to, you know, we are getting a little long, so I don't want to go into too much detail, but one of the things that I love is, I mean, a lot of these movies are very much take place in, the modern era, not merely as far as time, but also they are engaging with the war on terror, you know, the economic situation, or any any number of things. And a Most Wanted Man is is about uh, some you know ger- uh, German spies, basically, who are trying to actually make a difference. They're very cynical. They know that there's only going to be so much difference, but they recognize there that if it, if things go if people would just get out of their way and do things the way that they're – that would be most effective, then they could really s- kind of strike a blow. But it's this idea and of course it's written based on a book written by John Lacara, who – I've I've not read any of his books but I saw Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and I saw The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. He makes movies or he he writes stories and the movies that come from them are completely – For me. Which (laughs) is the idea. It's like, yes, there's the enemy that we're fighting and they will kill you. And that is, of course, the bigger issue. But then there's the enemies behind you. The people who are theoretically on your side and will keep you from doing whatever it is you need to do. The thing that you're theoretically supposed to be doing because of their own self-interest, because of their own fear, because of their any number of things. And A Most Wanted Man is all about that. And it is, you know, you watch it's sort of, it.
1: It's relatable to anyone who has a job or who has a boss.
0: <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, or has or has ever, like, had to, you know, maybe start a business or something like that. No. And you just realize, like, I'm just trying to start a fucking business. Why do I have to fill out all these forms? <laughs> you know? Um, like, I, I, especially in, like, the, I'm sorry to be, like, all anti-government. But as it turns out, I was thinking about this uh, pool hall that I that I used to go to uh, back when I lived at my old place. And uh, I was talking to the owner and uh, and he's like a, he said, oh yeah, we've been trying to get this place up and running for uh, for two years. And I said, two years, it's a pool hall that doesn't serve alcohol. Mm-hmm. How, and, and And it's like, it's trying to serve like neighborhood kids and stuff. Why are you why did it take so long? It seemed like a really good business. And he's like, Well, we're you know, we're open till two AM. And if you're open past midnight, you gotta fill out all kinds of forms and go through all kinds of procedures just to open this non-alcoholic pool hall. Wow. And it just and so when I hear that, it's just like, oh, that sounds so horrible. And these are characters that are in the thick of that. And it is such a bummer. I, I hate to use the word bummer. That doesn't do it justice. But it is such a tragedy that Philip Seymour Hoffman died when he did. Uh, because when you watch this, you realize he he truly did have a lifetime's worth of great performances ahead of him. Mm-hmm. This was a wonderful performance. And he really, not unlike uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, like, he really embodies... The theme of the film and when you see him at the end and I won't say what happens when you see him at the end that's when you like you are with him every step of the way and yeah. how he expresses his feelings is you're right there with him it's a really remarkable film I highly recommend it
1: yeah I don't have much to add uh, at okay. all I think <laughs> I think you hit it um, and we have to move on H- here's what I know you've seen okay my number two all right is Andre Zivya Leviathan. All right, I did see that. Um, but and you know what? I think
0: it would probably be in my top fifteen if my theatrical going ex- if my theater going experience oh, wasn't a, right. it was a little better. Right. I feel bad about that. Uh, but I feel like if I was able to watch the movie again straight through with no interruptions, I think I'd probably love it.
1: Um, but yeah, I mean, talk about a movie about uh, that encompasses the sort of bureaucracy <laughs> you're talking about. Um, but this. I don't think that uh, I mean, it is, uh, this is a film about corruption in the Russian government at mm-hmm. a, uh, e- even at a small town level. Yeah. Um, absolutely. It's about that, but it's about so much more than that because it, um, it takes it as its inspiration, the story of Job, which actually predates Russia. <laughs> I'm not following. <laughs> uh, and so it's about, you know, it's a, it's a, It's a universal struggle. It's, um, uh, I mean, I was going to call it a David and Goliath story, but if it were a David and Goliath story, it would be based on David and Goliath. This is much, much bigger than that. Yes. This is Job. (laughs) That's what it is. I, I can't think of any better, uh, comparison than to compare it to the story of Job because that's what it's about. Yeah. And the film itself does bring up that story. Um, what, Job? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it, is what what it doesn't have i guess and maybe you can speak better to this at least my understanding of the story of job is that we certainly as the reader we understand why what's happening to job is happening to him right uh yes um does he understand at some point Uh, at the end. Yes. At the end. But I don't know that, but I don't think this
0: film is at the end. Like, I don't think it ends where the story of Job ends. I think it ends in the middle of the story of Job. Okay. Do you know what I mean?
1: Uh, I'd have to read Job again, but yeah, I mean, he doesn't, yeah, he definitely doesn't, uh, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I'm making the I'm going to make this sound like, sound like such a bummer. But yeah, he uh, thinks they're still really shitty for him at the end.
0: It is kind of a bummer.
1: This, yeah, this movie. Uh, but it's also uh, just gorgeous. And mm-hmm. um, it has such a magnificent and towering uh, power to it. Um, man, I feel like I'm hitting the same points over and over again. But this is a story about. A, a guy who has a house that he built in a small town. Yeah. Um, for those who don't know what it's about. And, uh, the mayor of that town wants to take that land and thinks, you know, I don't know if it's called eminent domain in Russia, but yeah. that's essentially what he's claiming that, uh, that he has the right to kick the guy out of the house and take that land. Yeah. Um, the guy hasn't done anything wrong. He's not behind on his taxes or anything. He's the, the mayor is just, through loopholes or through just bullying um, is trying to take this guy's house from him. Mm-hmm. And um, this, he's put, putting all his efforts into fighting it in, and there's nothing he can do because I mean, you can't fight city hall, I guess, but that's not the point of the, again, yeah. that's the movie isn't, the movie is so well, much bigger than that.
0: Well, and it's not, that's not the only source of his problem. Exactly. Yeah. Know. I mean, there's, it's just a lot of things happening At once, some of them are related, some of them are not, and there's this feeling that he –
1: that – I think a lot more of them He has nowhere
0: else – he has nowhere to turn after a while.
1: I I think a lot more of them are related in a sort of cause and effect way. Mm -hmm. If one thing weren't happening, maybe this wouldn't have happened, which wouldn't have led to this, which wouldn't have led to this. It has – what I've compared it to in the past, at least the first act or so of um, Leviathan is very similar to A Separation Mm -hmm. in that it's kind of a legal thriller – or a legal drama that takes on the pace and emotions of a thriller. Yes. Because, um, just one thing leads to another. So with such inevitability that it takes on this momentum and it's like, this isn't, this guy isn't Jason Bourne or this guy isn't like, this isn't the firm. Like there's not some evil. I mean, there is an evil, uh, I get But then see to just, des- it would be wrong to describe the mayor as evil. Right. Um, because like the, Like the best villains, he believes that he's right. Yeah. Um, And based on what he does at the end, I don't know if you can make a case that. uh, I mean, what he did was wrong, but I I think there's a. I think you're allowed to see how at least the mayor can feel like the ends justify the means. Oh, sure. And he also has a number of very
0: notable enablers Uh of him. And when you end. I won't say who they are. Yeah, I feel like we're
1: dancing around certain things. Yeah, yeah.
0: And because I don't... I I really... This is not like a... This isn't Guardians of the Galaxy that everybody saw. Right. So I don't want to go into details. But what I will say is the nature of his enablers, when those people are enabling you, not only do you feel like, okay, what I'm doing is okay, you think it's noble, you think Mm -hmm. it's righteous, and so you're going to feel very emboldened. And so... And the, and the and the fact of that, I think, also it brings a lot of things into play, um, which the story of Job does as well. The idea that there are people that come in and seem to have good intentions and would seem to be on the side of right, but they do not help matters at all. And mm-hmm. They only make them worse. And yeah, it, there's there's so much going on with the film. And what one of the things that I like about it is because I had heard all about this Job thing. Um, which is true, but I had heard all about it and I went in with a very specific idea of how the characters would be approached. This is actually kind of an ensemble film, you know, I mean, there's definitely the Job figure, but played,
1: there are maybe, there are maybe four leads played by Alexei Serebriak, yeah uh, but yeah then there's his wife uh, Lilia played by Elena Liadova there's the mayor yeah fantastic I love played him. by Roman Maginoff and then there's the only actor I'd ever seen in anything before his uh, it's the main character's old army buddy yeah. played by Vladimir holy shit uh, yeah this is vid- you're heading down a bad road here uh, Vidovichinkov okay and he was in the um, terrible Fernando Moraes movie 360 I don't remember that one Three sixty six. Yeah, Anthony Hopkins is in it, and I want to oh, say like yeah. Ben Foster, maybe. Okay. Jude Law. Gosh. It's it's terrible. Don't see that. All right. Um, um but yeah, that's what I knew. He was the only actor I recognized, uh, and I knew him from that.
0: But yeah, so and that's but you see what I mean? Like those four like there are four main characters basically. And depending and depending on the scene you're looking at, you would think, Oh, this guy's the lead. Oh, no, she's the lead, right, and only as time goes on, and then it shifts to invol- to bring in his his son as well, yeah, and that's one of the things that I like is that it yes, it's clearly influenced by job, but it doesn't that doesn't mean it has to follow that structure either, you know, and so, well, in terms
1: of structure and pacing, to get away from theme and just talk about how um well directed this film is uh it's it was what two hours and 22 hours and 25 minutes long it's about a, that yeah maybe longer long, yeah it's a long movie um and it it in it just it, it, similar to the way it shifts focus it also shifts pace and tone a little bit yeah depending um, on who we're with but i think of the director here um whose name i've uh, forgotten again um oh boy uh, andre zivia i think of him as sort of a like a conductor of an orchestra the way Mm -hmm. that he moves these because i mean there's everything so grand in this movie it's it's a there are huge vistas and towering buildings and yeah uh but then also very you know cold small town you know parking lots and waiting rooms and all this stuff and it, it 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 doesn't i used the word shift before but it would more accu- accurately be described as a flow from one thing into the next and yep. back. And it develops a sort of uh, cadence um, that makes, for one thing, makes the movie not feel like two and a half hours, um, but also just eases you from one um, one tone or pace uh, to another. For a number of reasons. Uh, for some reason,
0: just tonally, this reminded me of Werkmeister harmonies. Oh, sure, um, yeah. Not the lead... <laughs> Both of them feature big dead well, uh, whales, which that's is true. weird. That's um, true. But yeah, I mean, can't you just imagine the music of Verkmeister Harmonies yeah. playing over this film? It yeah. just it it reminded me of that. And yeah, it it is a really remarkable film. Um we do disagree though. I think it feels every bit its length. And that's okay. I'm okay, okay with that. Um Okay, so next, was that what number was that? That was my number 2. All right. Here we go. My number 2 is I might not, I might not pronounce, pronounce this uh, name right. Jeremy Saulnier, Saulnier. Okay. Uh, Blue Ruin.
1: Oh, wow.
0: Yeah. That's a fantastic movie. It is. And I'm sure it counts as 2013. I saw
1: it in 2013, so it definitely counts as 2013 for me. I know. It got, (laughs)
0: there, there have been a few movies uh, in 2014 and now 2015 that I look at and, and it says oh 2013 because it played at a film festival or something like that right um this officially got a, a wide release okay uh in 2014 it's been um,
1: f- 15 months since yeah. i've seen it
0: yeah i and of course cheap thrills have been bouncing around for forever and so it's ugh, i hate the modern age <laughs> um <laughs> you know with vod and stuff like that um yeah blue ruin uh I was kind of late to the party on this. By the time I saw it, everybody had said, had sung its praises, including yourself. And, um, yeah, uh, it's marvelous. It is. And you know what? It really fits into, uh, so I recently watched Joe. Um, and then when I think of movies like winter's bone, there really does seem to be this interesting subgenre of the rural thriller. Mm -hmm. Um, and, Blue Ruin really uh, – kind of the a very low-stakes thing. We're not dealing with organized crime. We're dealing with a handful of criminals, each of them out for themselves. And in this case, we're dealing with a, a family feud, which is not nearly as fun as the game show would make it seem. Um, <laughs> and just the sadness the and the feeling that these characters are all just condemned, that it is never – until somebody decides – you know what i uh, I'm not going to seek vengeance for what happened until somebody makes that decision. Everybody is doomed um, but that's just that's just the the you know the theme and the tone uh it's It is shot beautifully with a, a wonderful eye for detail uh especially like the random brick a brac around a house and just the way uh characters wield weapons and um what can count as a weapon. And that sort of thing. Um, I think it's beautifully acted. The main uh, – the, the lead actor, Macon Blair, I believe his name is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he really does a, a great job of, of evolving over the course of the film. We have a very clear idea of what he is early on. And then it just turns out that he is broken in a way that we didn't think that, – that we didn't assume. And that uh, – and we also think that he's going to be – for some reason I just assumed he'd be extremely capable – Which he is to a point, but not really. Yeah. Uh, He gets lucky a lot. He gets lucky a whole lot. The real, but I'll say this the MVP is Devin Rattray, Uh who's shown himself, who's come a long way since Home Alone. Uh Um, Between Nebraska and this, he's really carving out a nice little uh, career for himself. And he is wonderful in the film as just. This the main character's old friend who wishes him well and is uh, and is trying to help him where he can, but is kind of unsentimental about things and just, but is still loyal because loyalty is a big thing in this in this uh, region and um yeah and it's it's a great thriller it's a great drama it's a
1: great character study it's also quite funny at times yeah I just I I I really loved it I think there's there's just a uh an almost Primal joy to watching a movie that um, each, each scene relates to the next in a in a way that builds this uh the this pace that's delightful and makes it incredibly watchable, but also is never predictable. Yeah, y- you know what I mean. Um, that's a that's a real fine line that Jeremy Solmi is walking there. Yeah. Um, by making you you never know what's going to happen next, but you also never feel like you're being jerked from one thing to another. Right. Uh, everything, after it happens, it all seems perfectly logi- logical.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of methodical, which the main character is as well. Um, again, he's he's not great at what he does, but he does have a plan. It might not be the best thought through plan, uh-huh. but he has a plan, and he's, all right, I got to do this and this and this, and we'll hope it works out.
1: Right. And sometimes his plan goes horribly, horribly wrong. Horribly right. <laughs> like when, this is early on in the movie, we won't ruin too much, but when he flattens the tire of a car that he then realizes he needs as an escape car <laughs> <laughs> and slices his hand open in the process yeah. so now he has to drive a car with a flat tire <laughs> and while bleeding he's, profusely yeah, yeah pulsing blood out of his hand <laughs> um, all right here we go number one for me it number should be one, no surprise to no one to anyone who has listened to the show because i've been saying for uh, weeks or maybe even a month or two now that that's my favorite film of the year it's ava duvernay's selma Uh, and it's my favorite film of the year. I think for reasons that I am not going to pretend aren't, um, political or emotional. And I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, I don't know if five or 10 years, if I look back and I'm like, really, that was my favorite because I'll be removed from this time period. I don't know. I don't know how, how I'll process that at the time, but, um, it's not only about that. Uh, I think the reason I stand by it is because on the one hand, it does seem like, oh, wow, it's almost fortuitous that, um, this movie about this thing that happened 50 plus years ago or 50 years ago, exactly now, Mm. um, uh, has such resonance in, uh, recent occurrences, you know, that, um, I mean, the, in the in the song that's Oscar nominated and plays over the end credits, uh, Common even talks about Ferguson mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, so we're seeing people um, protest and march for the rights of Black Americans now, just like we were 50 years ago. And so that's the initial connection is uh, is wow, that's uh, that's coincidental. But I think what the movie makes you realize by never feeling like a sort of musty historical biopic. What it makes you realize is that it's actually not that coincidental because things haven't changed. This isn't, this isn't a historical document or this isn't a, a, a recreation of a historical event that's under glass. Like it's in a museum. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, organic and visceral, um, and immediate in a way that even if, um, the things in even if we were fortunate enough to have uh, Michael Brown and Eric Garner not um, not not die, not have those awful things happen to them, uh, the film would still feel, I think, relevant to to today just because of the way it's made, which is not. Um, I mean, Ava DuVernay is a noted, uh, you know, independent filmmaker making her, I guess, major studio debut here isn't it weird that she was
0: in that she's in life itself yeah yeah like completely coincidentally
1: yeah um but she doesn't um i mean she doesn't try to make some avant-garde biopic but she also doesn't tone down her personality at all um this is a, a movie that is um unique um and personal and yet um more than accessible to to everyone i can't i mean uh, i mean i guess you'd have to be a pretty crazy racist to not find this movie (laughs) accessible Um, we call it a racist so i think it's um i think i i I don't want to i don't know if it's right to talk too much about or to speculate too much about off screen type of stuff but i just feel like there are so many pitfalls that Ava DuVernay avoided Mm -hmm. by, um, you know, you were talking earlier, I don't know, maybe this is days ago it has been going on so long, um, about being more concerned with how other people see you than your own opinion. And I feel like she never gave into that. She never, um, she never made, she never made a choice that was the film that people might have wanted her to make. She made a film that is, uh it it has a, it has a, an anger and a power to it because it comes from a personal point of view and that's uh, and that's why I'm an autorist because i I look for that sort of thing that to me is one of the uh, i think you nailed it that to me is one of the best
0: choices she could make it's not the blind side, <laughs> nor is it nixon and there would be tremendous pressure to make it the blind side. You just shave all those edges off. Hey, mm-hmm. it's Martin Luther King. Everybody likes him. So let's make this the most accessible movie so that everyone can see it. So much fun. or it's well, it's Martin Luther King, like this is a you know, and there's a racially charged time. whether the Ferg- you know whether Ferguson happened or not, it is still kind of a racially charged time, and so you know, we really got to stick it to him. So let's really play this up and really just uh-huh. punch him right in the face. she She walks in between and makes the movie she wants to make. Not the movie that will uh, appeal to the widest audience, although, again, I do think that – I can't think of anybody who wouldn't appreciate this film or think it was boring or anything like that. Um, You'd have to be a crisis. Absolutely. Oh, man. It's going to catch on. I see. (laughs) not merely a racist we can all kind of understand them but like a crazy racist the kind that doesn't like selma um, but uh, even a racist is like eh, david Oyelowo is pretty good um but uh, <laughs> I, I like this really nuanced racist yeah um but yeah and so but also, just yeah, not not wanting to make it uh, too, ex- uh, you know, um, unnaturally extreme and and I do think and I'm a big fan of this. Even though I'm, I wasn't a huge fan of Lincoln, I appreciate that rather than try and tell his whole story, it tells the story of this one case. And with Capote, it's called Capote, but it's about this defining moment of his life. And this or your
1: favorite movie, Lincoln?
0: I just said Lincoln. <laughs> oh, sorry. Pay attention, jerk. I think, I think I'm just zoning out. We're both very tired, admittedly. Yeah. Um, you stupid son of a bitch. <laughs> Get with the
1: program. I just said it. I, che- I just uh, said it. I was checking the time. <laughs> you motherfucker. Um, Are you really mad? No. Okay.
0: Um, I just feel like it's going to look
1: bad to the listeners. Um, oh, it'll look bad for me, for sure. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I, I will definitely look bad. Okay. Because I wasn't a, paying attention. That's important. Um,
0: so... But like with Capote, it's not about his whole life. It's about this one defining moment. And certainly, Martin Luther King, you could probably make a movie about any number of moments. But like this is – it's about – it's not merely about him. It's about the movement. And this was – one of the things that I like about it is showing the, the way the movement was organized. And just it – it didn't just come together. It was people making very calculated decisions as dispassionately as they could in order to achieve something that they were very rightfully angry about. To get into politics, uh-huh. God help us. I did want to ask you a question. Okay. Now you are not... All right, any- I'm
1: going to start paying attention now.
0: Okay. You should, because we <laughs> might be heading down a bad path. Now you are not the only person to include... You're not the only person to bring up Ferguson in regards to this film... The film itself does. Um, although the, the fact that it incorporates it into the song feels like it's just uh, Johnny Come, late, come Lately. It's just jumping on the Ferguson bandwagon. that's going to take him right to the top. Um, but let me ask you this. There is a notable difference, and I'm not trying to be condemning. There is a notable difference between the protests in Ferguson and the protests in Selma. You know what I mean? Like the whole reason that Martin Luther King and and the people uh, in the film say, we cannot throw a punch. We cannot hurt anything because then it will look – even if it looks disproportionate, it will look like it – like the police or whatever are provoked. Meanwhile, in Ferguson, there are any number of people who say that the the protesters are merely rioters and there is rioting going on. There's destruction of property. There's people being hurt and so – well, I do think it comes from the same place. Like, there is nothing I would love more than I, I do think that it would have more weight if it was merely a protest and, it, and riots didn't break out. But you know, do you feel like almost in the same way that like they've tried to make Woodstock happen again uh-huh. and it has never gone well? Like, do you personally? And may, and I I don't I I don't think this is a this is a political question. Do you think that that kind of thing is still possible, or is it so charged now and people are so
1: angry that it it's just not possible anymore? Um, I don't think it has to do with the level of anger. Okay, I think um, maybe there's not enough of a consolidation of what's the word i'm looking for of media that's not that's not the right word but it's hard for i i think there's probably or at least i hope there's another martin luther king jr out there who is ready to step up and i think maybe that's that's why it didn't happen in soma the you know the the fractures, yeah yeah, you know factions breaking off and 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 in rioting um is because they were able to unite behind one person. Mm-hmm. I think there's a person out there that probably has that power, but there are the the ways of getting to the masses or getting to your potential audience are so splintered now that it's hard for one person to control enough of the message or be heard enough to rally everyone around one cause. Everyone has their own, like, you know, they get their news from this website or this Twitter feed or whatever. And so, um, different people are motivated by different things. Whereas, um, and in many ways that's great, you know, to have so many different, um, voices be heard. But I do think it's, it's maybe part of the reason why, um, there hasn't been as much unification as there was,
0: as at least as depicted in Selma. And do you think it might also be that it's one thing when it's like, OK, this is a very specific on the books unjust law. We need to work to get that law overturned, whereas now it's more just general just like general racism and abuse of power on the part of a few that is not necessarily like there's nothing on the books that says uh, a cop can kill a black person with total impunity, but there is a, there is a law on the books that says a cop can defend himself against anybody. And in this case, it happens to be it. Well, and in numerous cases, it happens to be against a black person. And maybe that's
1: the reason what you're, what you're talking about isn't exactly the case because as laid out in, in Selma, it's not, it's, Technically, on the books, a black person had the right to vote right. in Alabama yeah, yeah. at the time. So they were advocating for a change to the law. So maybe that's yeah. what it need. What Ferguson or or the Eric Garner um, things in New York need is not just protesting against something, mm-hmm. but protesting in favor of something. Yeah. like let's. Here's a law that we want to draft up that yeah. will prevent this or or will uh, prov- provide consequences for this sort of thing in the future and this is what we're fighting for yeah maybe that's i, I don't know i hadn't thought about them that. maybe that's what it needs because that's the thing is it's not merely
0: unifying behind a person it's also unifying behind a cause and as and of course it sounds so hor- so ridiculous to have to say this but anti-racism is a wonderful cause but it's so huge it's a right. it's a concept right you know and i feel like and that's and but i do think that there needs to be like a one or two central figures that people can rally behind and i don't think al sharpton is it uh i don't think he's going to i think his, his that ship has sailed um but uh but yeah and you know what here's the thing is hopefully i, I don't think we've said anything remarkably uh, offensive to anybody i feel like we're almost Not remarkably kind of, offensive did i say did i say anything no
1: i i said i hated dear white people about 5 hours ago oh
0: okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's not that long. We took a break in between. You're going to cut that out, I assume.
1: Right. We'll, um, we'll find out. The listener knows by this point.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, and you know what? And I think that's one of the great things about Selma is that it does start this conversation. People look at things then. They look at it now. They say, what has changed? Okay, not as much. So what can we do about it? Because they were effective at certain things, you know, um, and so, how can we be as effective now? And what are we do? You know, what's different? How have thi- how has thing how have things gotten worse or better or whatever? I don't know. It's it is a it's a really powerful film and one that I feel like you can't, especially these days, you can't walk away from and be like, "Well, that was nice." On to the onto the rest <laughs> of my life. Um, okay, so that's your number one. A very worthy number one. My number one.
1: Also very worthy. Is it? Yeah. I'm okay. excited to talk about it. Uh, Jennifer Kent's The Babadook. All right. First off, let's take a moment to pat ourselves on the back that we both have number ones directed by women. That's true. And actually- We're so much better than the Academy.
0: Yeah, but that's, but you're better than I am because it's a, yours is a black woman. Oh, oh that's true. Oh, but mine's an oh, mine's not American either.
2: Ah, that's We're both true. doing
0: all right. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Diversity, diversity <laughs> that's what we're representing over here at battleship attention. let me just uh let me just straighten my diversity <laughs>
2: um,
0: so uh yeah boy oh boy the Babadook, I had heard good things about it I had heard that it was a great horror movie uh, I saw the trailer at three am scared the hell out of me on the uh, walk from my office to my bedroom the, and then I saw the film and I was absolutely blown away not by the fear although there is plenty of that but oh, yeah. by just the emotion and just how much stuff that's one of the things that i love about horror is the, what you can do with it the 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 way you can use it to explore the human condition this reminded me in a lot of ways of the descent a film mm-hmm. another australian film i believe
1: Oh uh, yeah yeah um is that right yeah okay the director i feel is British, but I could be wrong. He, he might be. I don't recall, but um. But yeah, uh,
0: just this idea of our negative instincts taking on a form that will destroy us, and or destroy the things that we love. And here we have a woman who has who lost her husband um, the day that her son is born, and of course links those two immediately and then her son also turns out to be a handful now he'd be a handful with two parents but she's by herself and she's trying to take care of her son she's trying to show him love but he is just so much work and she whether she admits it to herself or not she resents her son even though she was i'm i have no doubt that she was happy to have a she was happy to have a child. It's not like she viewed this as ruining her life. It just turned out that that's how it happened. But her son doesn't know that. And and what I love, one thing that I love about it is that a lot of people have a problem with the son, with no the the actor's name is Noah Wiseman. and they're mm-hmm. like, oh, he's so annoying. And I'm just like, okay. Admittedly, we are seeing things th- from her perspective, but also I do think that kids have the ability. To pick up on the vibes that their parents are putting out, and this is a vibe of resentment, and drudgery, and anger, and sadness, all put on this kid. Whether she tries to or not, it's all on him, mm-hmm. and he's probably reacting to it. Not probably, he is reacting. Oh yeah, to
1: well, it. as we learn by the end, very he, much. He, so. he gets it. Yeah, yeah, he got, yeah. Suddenly, a lot of his uh, quirks
0: make a lot <laughs> of sense at the end, um, and so it's all of these negative things. Inside her and it's, and it takes on a form in which she – and it's a temptation and it's a possession and it's all of these things in which she finally does what she would never admit to herself she would like to do but is now being forced to do. Uh, and I just – and so that's, the, that's emotionally and then where it arrives at the end I think
1: is so Wonderful. Well, here's where I'll be devil's advocate. Here's where I'll be uh, you with inherent vice. Okay. I think I need to watch it again. Okay. Because the end of the movie worked for me intellectually after the fact when I parsed it while I was out walking my dog. And I thought about, how did it get to that? Like, what happened? You know, I don't want to give away spoilers, but I was like, what took place that made that happen? And I got there by thinking it through. Okay. But I didn't feel it in the moment. Oh, okay. Um, And... Uh, I think that's as much as I uh, love the film. I think that's what kept it out of out of my top fifteen. Hmm. Is um, yeah, it just it kind of lost uh, lost the thread for me emotionally at the end, in a way it clearly didn't for you. Yeah, that's that's because I've only seen it the once,
0: and and I I very much responded emotionally to it, and and that's the thing is I, I there's so much I want to say about it, but I don't but I don't want to because it, that would spoil it a little bit. But in the end, she basically has she's forced to deal with her with her emotions and in a way she never has because maybe she was afraid to maybe she didn't know how to do it and eventually when we when grief and sadness and anger and resentment like if if it just lingers and festers in us and does not and we do not deal with it it will come out eventually we will have to deal with it eventually uh and i will say, but so that again that's just the emotional side of it stylistically yeah every choice jennifer kent makes is to me i would say perfect f- from a horror standpoint yeah from the design of the house f- to the color palette to the music the disturbing childlike music to the design of the babadook book which is of course yeah. Wonderful. Those things sold out for 80 bucks each when the uh when the <laughs> production company put them out. Um to the design of the of the babadook itself. So simple, but boy it does the job. Oh,
1: definitely. Just for the me. top
0: hat, coat, those long horrible fingers and the big <laughs> old smile. And it's just so simple, but man, it's I uh I actually rewatched a couple for reasons I can't go into, but um I rewatched a couple scenes last night. And I haven't seen the film in a couple, two or three months at this point. Um, and so I was watching these scenes, having not really remembering the context. And then within three seconds, I was like, oh, yeah, now I remember. Oh, <laughs> good God. Oh, good God. I have to sleep tonight. Yeah. And again, it's not as scary as I thought it was going to be, because, partially because I was so emotionally invested. No, in I was, was definitely on. scared by Were it. Were you
1: really? Yeah. Because it's, it's my type of scary, yeah. which is the uh the drawn out dread, dread feeling um or even when the the tension of something you know there's a part when she finds uh cockroaches behind the uh refrigerator yeah. and she's peeling away at the wall mm-hmm. to find where they're coming from and the way the shot is framed the wall is on the left side of the frame and her face is right in front of it, which means the whole kitchen is behind her yeah. on the right side of the frame, which is not how we're used to seeing things framed yeah. with all that negative space behind a person. Yeah. And so the whole time we're thinking, where is her son? Where is the Babadook? Is something coming? Yeah. Are there more cockroaches? What, what's going to happen in that space? And whether or not Jennifer Kent does anything to that space, I'm not going to spoil. Yeah. But just the fact of it, uh, it just keeps that, it keeps that dread going the whole time.
0: The I feel like a lot of modern horror movies or TV shows at this point. Th- I think they would they do well. The good ones I think do well to understand what the ex- that we as horror movie watchers are trained to expect. Something one uh, I don't like The Walking Dead. I, sorry I don't love The Walking Dead. I think especially that first season is deeply flawed. And I'm sure I've said this before, but uh, uh, Frank Darabont directed the pilot, and it's great. And one of my favorite things in it is that the main character is in a hospital, and he goes into a stairwell. He has to go down, I think, two floors, maybe just one. Stairwell, there is no light. It is completely black. So, and the character has to just keep lighting matches. Hmm. And he goes through about three. And so he's walking down, lights a match, and just keeps walking. Goes down, lights another match, keeps walking. Goes down a little bit further, lights a match, and then gets out of the stairwell. <laughs> and that's the thing. Yeah, nothing happened, but we've been trained to absolutely yeah. expect that on that third match. There's a zombie right there. But in the but that actually would have been something cathartic. That would have been a release.
1: Right. But yeah. the fact
0: that there's nothing there means that you never know where something's coming from. It was. Yeah. A, it's a wonderful choice. I can't talk enough about it and the Babadook has all kinds of stuff like that you're absolutely right and I do think the script is so we we keep talking about symmetry I guess when you think of like setup and payoff I guess that's a kind of symmetry Um, and I think the Babadook is so beautifully structured that there are payoff there are setups that we don't even quite realize are setups and then until they pay off and then we realize like oh that's that's wonderful I cannot speak highly enough of the Babadook I think it's it's I, I'm very surprised that it was my favorite movie of 2014, <laughs> but pleasantly so. Um, and you know what's interesting is looking at looking at our our top 15s. Basically, there's very
1: little overlap. Yeah, that's which, the kind of year it was. Yeah. Do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Um oh, I think it's a. I, I, oh, I mean, I think it's a good thing for us. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's good that there were that many good films. Yeah yeah
0: so and i and i feel like there's a lot of a lot of uh recommendable films here so and i would highly recommend everybody uh we don't know what date specifically i'll see what i can do um but uh our uh second annual bps are coming up or bps pardon me yeah um che-
1: check your uh, podcast feed yeah okay you can find us at battleshipretention.com. You can email us at David at com or Tyler at com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at The Pretension. You can follow Tyler at Tyler Pretension. Um, let's see. Oh, um, your Myler podcast is called Hey Watch This. It's about uh, TV. This week, uh, talking to Todd Vanderwerf about The Jinx and The Daily Show. Todd Vanderwerf, that's nice. Yeah, because Paul's uh, taking the week off because he got married. Mm. Um, and your show is called More Than One Lesson. Yeah, this week, uh, well, so
0: a couple of weeks ago we talked about Birdman, and then this week we talk about a different man. We're talking about Rainman. All right. Uh, the best picture of
1: 1988. Um, yeah. Not a very good movie, in not, my opinion. Not
0: a terrible movie either. And you know what? You know who's great, though? Who's that? The Valerina Galena. Well, I can't argue with that. Yeah. And and Tom Cruise is great as well. And here's something that has come about, just a little side note that's fascinating. So we talked about you know we're going through the best pictures. we talked about driving Miss Daisy, and then we talked about rain man uh, both of the okay Rain Man was the number one movie of that year huh i i think it was i think it was number one it made like $320 dollars Wow Driving Miss Daisy made well over a hundred million like it's strange to think now yeah. when. It's going to be, a, it's either a comic book movie or it's Star Wars or whatever. It has to be part of a huge action franchise. Right. Whereas back then, Rain Man or Driving Miss Daisy could be in the top three of the year, if not number one. It's cr- isn't that strange to think yeah. about? I'm trying to think like what, what changed well, I mean, except uh, just more franchises. Yeah.
1: But I mean, American Sniper, not that it's great, but I mean, American yeah. Sniper is doing gangbusters this year. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's enough. Uh, that's it. Um, is that all? Yes. Thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye.